Hello everyone, I'm glad to see you back for another week of amazing scary stories. Let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I was hired as a creepypasta narrator. The rules are really strange. Written by Blake Blizzard. I should have known this was a terrible idea. Who finds and takes a job offer while casually browsing Reddit? Yes, I realize that I'm posting this story on Reddit right now, but this is the only place I know I can reach people. I love the front page of the internet, but it's no early 2000s era monster.com. It's not a site to find a job, unless it's a job literally working for Reddit. I don't know, look, I'm out of my mind right now. I messed up. I couldn't keep it all straight. I just couldn't do it. I don't know how much time I have, but I have a nifty little setting that will post whatever I have written on the subreddit if I'm AFK for more than two minutes. I don't know if I'll live long enough to hit the post button. So I'll type as much as I can. Sorry for any typos or information that doesn't make sense. My name doesn't matter, but you can call me B. I'm going to try and give just the facts, ma'am. Again, forgive me if my words come out looking like the conspiracy Charlie meme from Always Sunny. I love all things media, radio specifically. Talk radio more specifically. I remember as an early teen hearing Howard Stern and having my socks blown off by how wild his show was. As I grew into an older teen around 18 or 19, I still appreciated the cheeky topics that he and his crew discussed but I started to understand the incredible talent he had for communication and honesty. I think his movie displayed how he decided to be truthful to his audience all the time, even if it hurt. He also didn't write the movie, so well, I take it for what it is, but I believe him. I say all that to say that I wanted to work in some kind of radio format. This series was just in its infancy, soon to be catapulted into the mainstream by Howard, and the podcast era was also picking up steam. I didn't want to be on the air. I wanted to produce or write, do segments, research, things of that nature. I also love scary stories, which had a great home on certain programs online and radio. And this will come into play soon. I got a half-ride scholarship to Central Michigan University to their communications program, Exactly what I was looking for. I don't know how many programs I applied to or how many my parents helped me apply for, but this was the one that took me. Never heard of the school, much less the state. Fire up chips, I guess. Don't mistake my lack of excitement for not appreciating what I received. I had a blast every day for four years. I was lucky enough to pair up with some great dudes, not the party types, just like me. I mean, we drank and had fun, sure, but not in the dude bro way that so many campuses are full of. All three of us are still friends to this day. I hope no one has to tell them to come to my funeral. After earning my bachelor's degree in communications, I had the same question as nearly every college grad does. Now what? I really didn't know what my degree was worth and I didn't know what to do. So I toiled away working on my craft. When I lacked an experience, I made up for with raw determination. I wanted to be the best at what I did, whatever that may be. 
I had a part-time gig producing some college radio shows while I was finishing my degree. Everyone in the field knows how unremarkable these late-night shifts can be. I loved it, though. It gave me a chance to feel like I was the Baba Booey to whatever K-Mart version of Howard Stern was spinning records on any given night. I eventually moved on to some TV spots, production assistant jobs, and even working on a locally Emmy-nominated nature show on PBS. It was a blast. After not winning, I fell into a slog. Throughout my early career in media, I never forgot my love of scary stories. I always loved programs on urban legends and movies about monsters, and reading supposedly true ghost encounters. At this time, about 2012 or so, I found the term creepypasta, which was becoming all the rage on Reddit and beyond. That's what I wanted to do. Write, produce, and or narrate these incredible stories about tall, scary killers and pre-teen psychopaths. I did a bit of work creating and producing YouTube videos for some early adapters of this medium. This failed to actually pay the bills though and I was forced to really work for a living. I held on some menial delivery jobs, boring security shifts and gulp, telemarketing scams. This is where the rando browsing of Reddit one night changed my life. I don't know how I found myself on the subreddit, I was just there. I go through a lot of scary story creepypasta subreddits. I'm sure that it was just on my recommendation feed. The title hit me between the eyes like a sledgehammer. Want to earn money narrating creepypastas? Well, of course I do. There was no text in the preview, so I clicked on the title. The subreddit was called Enigma Reads. From memory, I'll attempt to give you all the gist of what the post said. The original post is gone now for reasons that may become obvious later. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Enigma Reads. I'll tell you this now that upon further investigation, this subreddit did not have any other posts or interactions. I didn't know this at the time. We are looking for exciting narrators to read spooky stories. They will range from all corners of the dark. Creepypastas, urban myth, true and uncanny. Is this something that interests you, Scary Gary? Well then, let's get started. There are just a few rules you must follow. These rules are not negotiable. I knew this was coming. The dreaded rules, creepypasta channels. I'll give it a go. First rule. You must start recording at 11.59pm, in whichever respective time zone you reside in. Second rule. Stories will be emailed to you. All stories will have a read receipt attached. You must acknowledge that you've read the entire entry. Pay no attention to the address that they are sent from. It will not be from the same email every time. Rule 3. Submit the recording to Enigma 123456789 at enigmareads.net with the story title and the subject line. Okay, that's a little strange. Most corporate emails are not that convoluted and for sure don't have a .net address with two ends in it too. I had to say that I recognized a small red flag raising, but dang it, I was intrigued. Fourth rule, be sure to have one dozen red roses near you while narrating. They don't have to be fresh cut per se, but should be purchased the day of recording. What? Fifth rule, if you hear a single or triple knock at the door at any time during your narration, stop recording immediately. 
politely say thank you and walk around your home for two to five minutes. It should be safe to resume narration soon after here. Just make sure the roses are still alive. Side note, do not answer the door if or when you hear the three knocks. Also follow these same instructions if you hear a cat meow. Number six, compensation will be mailed to a P.O. box one week after the story has been submitted to Enigma Reads. If you're accepted, we will send it to a P.O. near the area that you live in. Rule seven, if you find a yellow rose, what the heck is it with the roses? In the P.O. box with your payment, expect another story submission to be emailed by the end of the business day. If you find a black rose, you must relocate and never narrate again. Okay, okay, I'm done. I shut my laptop screen down and shoved off my chair. I was more embarrassed than anything that I lasted that long into what was clearly a troll post. How stupid. I was so blind to wanting a narration job that I ignored all the insane rules until the silliness factor hit 100%. I sat back and actually had a nice laugh to myself. Oh, B, I said, you got got. That's all, man. Let's put on some mindless Minecraft Let's Plays to soothe your ego. And then I read rule number eight. Rule number eight. Do not ignore this. We all live by the rules. You were meant for this. Follow the rules, B. Have fun. Why did it say, follow the rules, B? My first name starts with the letter B. There's no way that could be meant for me specifically. It could be a mistake or it could be meant for me. I sent my application and pertinent information to the email address. Four weeks later, the clock face stares at me as I stare at it. 11.58, 11.59, record. Only 15 minutes later and I've finished the narration of my first story. I'll have to go back and do some light editing, but right now I'm satisfied. It was a safe story about the main character traversing a weird haunted house. The house starts speaking to him, he gets sucked in, makes mistakes, and gets swallowed by the resident spirits. Not a story that would win any Peabody's, but still, a well-written one. It was the first one sent to me after I had submitted my application. After four weeks, I had almost forgotten about the whole ordeal. I was happy to be accepted to read a story. After making some minor tweaks, I submitted to the strange email address. Guess there's nothing left to do but to go on with my life. I wasn't afraid about following the rules. I followed them all as far as I could tell. Dear participant, thank you. Check P.O. box redacted for your payment. Nice. Once I grab the check, I will officially be a professional creepypasta narrator. If you get paid for something that makes you a professional... Small victory, hopefully the first of many. I took an unfamiliar walk to my local post office. Unless you're in the business of mailing out multiple packages weekly, or have an actual P.O. box, the average person doesn't visit the old American institution very often. I knew where it was, of course, and just by living here for a spell. But I don't think I've set one, a solitary sandal there. My mail gets delivered to my home like most people I felt a little nostalgia wash over me like stepping outside in the early morning hours onto a white sanded Florida beach. My mom used to bring me to the post office when I was a kid. Not sure why we needed a P.O. box. We did have a regular mailbox outside our home. 
As kids, you don't ask silly questions like that. Ivan felt the little satisfaction of having your own key that opens your own little package portal since then. Number 222. That's the box that had been assigned to me. I'm not into numerology or anything, but I do appreciate aesthetically pleasing patterns like this. A three of these same number repeated, lovely. As soon as my government-issued bronze key makes contact with the lock, I feel a rising panic. The rules. Crap. I forgot that I'm supposed to be looking for something beside the payment. I looked at my phone hoping to have saved that post. Oh man, why didn't I save it? After I got my heart back down to maybe 160 from 190 BPM, I decided that I'd either open it or just leave it. Here we go. An envelope. No rose, no flower. I don't think the rules said anything about not seeing any rose. I'm not sure. I wish I was sure. I shakily opened the envelope. It wasn't sealed, just tucked in like you would do if you give a birthday card to a friend. A small eggshell colored index card was inside. I saw green also, but I wanted to read what the card had to say. Enclosed is payment to redacted in the amounts of $500 for story number one, based on the agreed upon rate of 10 cents for every word upon acceptance. Great working with you and hope we do it again soon. Ta-ta. I craned my head toward the stained ceiling from the disco era that let out a generous belly laugh from my generous belly. This has been a goof. It's real, I mean, but it was just a cheeky game. Like all internet stuff is now. There are no roses or knocks or witches or black cats. You know what, I appreciate the theater. Oh man, my journal will love this post. And I got a cool five hundo for the story. Come to think of it though, I don't remember the agreed upon rate. This seems way above standard, but well, I'll take it. Hopefully I can do it again. Sliding into my home on a high as a professional writer... I threw my keys on the table, opened my fridge, and poured myself a two-finger black velvet whiskey. Nothing but the best, a second shelf liqueur to celebrate my entry into the world of creepypasta. As fast as I drowned the brown liquid, I dropped the thankfully plastic cup onto the ground, spilling ice everywhere. A solitary yellow rose was on my dining room table. A note accompanied the rose rubber banded around the stem, written in crayon. Disturbing. We should have mentioned that the rules are somewhat fluid. The rose can be anywhere, not just in the P.O. box. Sometimes our benefactors want them inside of the home. Don't fret. Nothing was touched and we locked up afterwards. Great story. Check your email for the next one. My head was spinning, not helped by the generous helping of Canadian whiskey that I just downed. I have to sit down. What just happened? Someone was in my house. I have to, I, I need, I need another drink. After one or seven more drinks, I stayed focused on the most beautiful fullest rose that I had ever seen, yellow or otherwise. A message. I picked up my phone from its face down position beside me on the couch. An email. From storyfan at creepy.com. Subject, new story. I read the synopsis of the new story with glazed eyes. A generic ripoff of a Slenderman-style story. Kids go missing in a summer camp. Creepy tall guy sighted, blah blah blah. 
I hunched forward, head in hands. How can I get over the fact that someone or something was in my home? I didn't feel like I was in danger, but I didn't like what was happening either. I did get a very real 500 bucks, though. I'm on my way to buy a dozen red roses. I am again eyeing the blazing red numbers on my digital clock. 11.59. Trance-like, I start to pound away on the keyboard. Before I know it, it's almost 5 a.m. It's, it's a masterpiece. As far as throwaway, rip-off, creepypasta stories go, I'm not ashamed. Submit. I'm proud to say that a couple of months later, I'm starting to make a comfortable living pumping out stories to all corners of the web. I see them on YouTube, Spotify, and even have a series adapted for television. I couldn't be happier. Finally, being recognized for my talent is a feeling that I can't put into words. Despite being a professional writer now, no black roses and no more creepy rules popping up, I'm in a sublime state. I check my email to see another story. This one is right in my wheelhouse. The writer is working late, hears strange noises, the writer descends into madness. I get right to work, I didn't even look at the clock. This one kind of got away from me in a good way. I don't go beyond five to 6,000 words often. In fact, it's an absolute rarity. After I snapped out of my writing trance, I realized that I should start to edit this beast down. Three knocks on my door, and I almost jumped out of my skin. Thankfully, my writing fuel, whiskey, was not present into my highball otherwise. That would have been either all over me or all over my computer. My poor heart starts to race. This is one of the rules, but I can't remember what I'm supposed to do. Dang it, what do I do? I hastily run to the kitchen where I scratched out the rules on my dry erase board. In my inebriated state, I could barely make out rule number five. If a single or triple knock occurs at any time, stop writing immediately. Say thank you and remain calm. Crap, thank goodness I was in some kind of sober mindset to write that out. Thank you, I said sheepishly into the ether. No response, of course. I looked left and I looked right and nothing. No specters, no demons. Good thing I've been following the rules. Silly to think these are actually the real, but what's been working has been working, so I'm not going to chance it now. I plan on making my retirement on this gig. I woke up in pain. Not unfamiliar pain, more self-induced. I'll recover, I always do. Thankfully, it's an amazing 90 degrees out. Perfect for recovering from the night before, at least for me. I'll commence my hangover ritual. Take a walk, sweat it out, get some caffeine and destroy something greasy. Preferably a Carl's Jr. burger. And that's what I did. And wouldn't you know, I was feeling back to normal by the time that I made it to the post office. P.O. Box 222. This one will be a nice payday, and that last story that I submitted was well over 10,000 words. As I opened the box that I saw, black. No light and certainly no envelope containing cash or a check. I had to shake my head and try to come back to reality. I'm feeling okay, but still I'm over here. I must not be seeing this right, and I wasn't. I saw black because there was the largest black rose facing me that anyone had ever seen. I don't even know if this was truly a rose. The petals were at least double the size of a normal rose. For some dumb reason, I leaned in and I smelled it. It smelled great, and it was real. 
The well-known phrase entered my mind, stop and smell the roses. And at that moment I understood. I didn't understand, but I understood. Enjoy what you have, be a good person. Man, I wish I was a better person. I'm wasting my life writing silly stories and not enjoying loved ones. Not enjoying everything. Not enjoying anything. There was a tiny note underneath the black rose. As I grabbed the rose, I felt a slight sting in my left hand. Warmth fills me, a liquid pain. Beneath the bloodstains, I could unfortunately read what the note said. Follow the rules. My skin turned ice cold. My brain shifted into seventh gear. I followed every rule. I put forth an honest effort. I wasn't trying to deceive anyone or anything. I was starting to get hyper. Tears were effortlessly falling from my eyes. At this point, I knew the final chapter was being written in front of me. I still don't understand. I said thank you, I stopped. What else do you maniacs want? My visceral caveman pleas were met by no reply. I was embarrassed to have lost my composure like that. I painfully straightened up, squared my shoulders and lifted my chin up. I'm going to walk home. I'm going to walk home and accept whatever is waiting for me like a man. I wasn't even faced when I saw my door was ajar. I threw my keys on the table. I took one step towards the drawer above the sink where I keep my liquor, but I stopped. For once, I won't have to imbibe to hide my pain. I'm ready to take it. I instead filled a dirty cup in the sink with fresh, cool water. After a generous drink, I spoke to whatever was behind me. Why? Sometimes good things happen to bad people. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Some rules are made to be broken. Most are made to follow. You will be remembered, though. Not many can say that. There are five types of demons. I hunt them. Written by Agony Blue. Part of my job entails tracking and cataloging the various types of demon persona that roam this earth. My name is Fremont Earhart, and I come from a long line of demon catalogers. And before you ask, no, there's absolutely no relation to the human aeronaut, Amelia Earnhardt. I am absolutely overworked, underpaid, and have received absolutely zero benefits, health, dental, or otherwise upon starting this job. My cousins, the esteemed Montclair family, would also like to argue that my job is decidedly less sexy and way less cool than their position as the crown's premier demon hunters. I, of course, would like to argue otherwise. Sometimes I have cool days, alright. The other day, for example, I'd been tracking this thing across the Pacific Northwest, watching as it went from town to town wrecking havoc. Think... The climax fight scene in the Transformer movies. Fire, debris everywhere. Skyscrapers destroyed, bodies in the street. I had tracked it to a small town outside of Patterson, New Jersey, and was listening to the shriek of the police scanners as the engorged demon tore apart the streets in search of more human meat. I brought my trusty MacBook Pro and was busy sitting in a nearby coffee shop hard at work. I had been having kind of a tough day, 
I had celebrated a friend's birthday the night before and she had ordered entrees for the table. Unfortunately, she didn't inform me that the pizza wasn't dairy-free. So, the entire morning had been spent with Tom's, lots of Advil, and with an upset tummy. Now, demons obviously aren't from this plane of existence. Philosophers, historians, and scientists all have different theories about where these particular beings of energy originate from. Theologists, too. But since they're so completely off base, I've decided to not include them in this roundup. Alternate Dimensions Karmic Energy Recycled Fallen beasts from overlapping universes. I've heard all the ideas. The truth is, no one really knows. What we have done, however, is identify them. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. This day, I think it was a Tuesday, was a very cool one. I had tracked that demon to a defunct paper mill outside the main strip. A group of humans had taken refuge there hoping that the thick steel walls would provide some kind of protection. They were a simpering bunch, whining and wailing and calling out ritualistic words that I've heard used in prayers to their sky god. Absolutely no one thought to draw a perimeter or attempt to barricade the steel doors. Useless anyways. The demon saw this as an opportunity for a tasty snack, and displayed the aggressive predator skills that I've observed before. The hooked dew claws tipped with poison, the hardened armor plates around the vulnerable underbelly, and the displayed blood-red fan around its eyeless face, not unlike the fan-throated dragon lizard here on Earth. But as it went in for the kill, I noticed that it hesitated. I was absolutely dumbfounded. It's a hogmond. This freaking killing machine doesn't hesitate. What was going on? Claws out, teeth out. This thing was prepared to shred these humans into spaghettios. However, now it was frozen in place. Crouched over the weeping and gibbering humans who had backed themselves into a corner of the mill. The humans had backed themselves into the tight space underneath these giant metal stairs that accessed all three levels of the old, decaying paper mill. The stairs themselves were falling apart. Clearly a safety hazard and major workplace violation. Large swaths of the stairs were coated red with rust, with corroded metal piling up an inch thick. Hmm, rust, iron. Maybe that had something to do with it. I was crouched nearby to the scene of the crime, furiously taking notes. I had been distracted that morning thanks to my upset stomach and had accidentally left my hotspot at home so I unfortunately wasn't able to use my MacBook Pro all the way out here. Fortunately, I had found my old black book, blood ink pen, and voice recorder in the backseat of my black Prius, so I was using those instead. I could see the hogmoth straining, the poison dripping from its claws as it labored furiously to reach the whining bags of meat. It clearly wanted to reach the humans, but there was something stopping it from reaching its end goal, of creating lots of little piles of human meat. But what was it? Ah, yes, there. A human girl, front and center. Dark complexion, brown, curly hair. Clocking her at about 15 or 16 years old. Clutching a large cross to her chest. Silver, possibly iron. Chanting the same prayers as the other humans. The other humans are still crying, yes. However, this human girl... 
I paused. This human girl hasn't broken eye contact with the beast. I said into the recorder. Interesting. Very interesting. It seems that the hogmoth is having a reaction to the prayers. Or to her. I recorded. She's one to keep an eye on. We'll circle back later. Observation recorded and the phenomena cataloged. It was time to clean up this mess and call in the cousins. I pulled out the suitcase, Blue 82, and tuned it to the frequencies to match the human's heartbeats. After a messy case almost 1,991 years ago involving the Romans and a large cult following, basically a small group of renegade humans had made exposure of the Lilith demon that we were on the cusp of almost, almost subduing which resulted in wide-scale exposure. The crown had then tasked us with creating a weapon that could target only certain individuals, resulting in immediate results with only minimal damage. Thus, the Blue 82 was born. Set it to certain frequencies such as location, heartbeat, or crowd number, heck, even a mugshot, and the resulting blast would only affect them. In this case, after putting in the correct calculations, I set it off to make short work of these human meat suits but not before letting that particular human girl go. I'm not a fan of humans, in fact. I find them vile and impulsive and downright fleshy. But I do admire the ones that show the tenacity to survive. And then I called in my cousins. They came riding in on their literal white horses and made short work of the demon itself, sent back to the dimension in which it came from. All that was left for me was the case paperwork which I finished back in my Brooklyn loft with hot cocoa in my heated blanket. All in all, a pretty cool day. My job involves the tracking and classification of the five major types of a demon. Hargmond, the largest of the five, is strong, beastly, angry, and nearly impossible to put down. Its earthly body looks not unlike a large, bloated lizard, usually dark green, black, or dark blue or black. The Hogmoth has ten massive hooked claws on each of its four legs. The hooked claws are tipped with the deadliest poison on earth, which has the ability to paralyze in seconds. Once its victim is completely paralyzed, the Hogmoth will drag its helpless victim back into whatever cave or abandoned mine that serves as its lair. Unless it's been encouraged into a killing frenzy in which it'll just tear the town apart. The Hargmoth has a large, blood-red fan that folds over his eyeless face. It is usually folded over unless the Hargmoth is displaying aggressive behavior, in which it will undulate like a flower in the wind. Lilith, one of the smallest of the five, this one is particularly tricky as it has the ability to change shape. One of its preferred forms is the human female. The form is usually small, unassuming but with a hypnotic spell that easily draws in droves of humans. There, it will nearly always use the ability to incite mass riots, purges, and other nefarious deeds. Lilith have been spotted at major points in the human's history. Jesus' crucifixion, the Trojan War, the Salem witch trials, the stabbing of Caesar, World War II, and the list goes on. When not presenting in its preferred human form, the Lilith is a small, gelatinous, blob-like creature with two dark eyes and waving tentacles down the two sides of its form. 
Iron is fatal to the Lilith, and in fact, the increase in the widespread use of iron is partly the reason why humans will occasionally survive the Lilith, and therefore has given rise to many of the myths and fairy tales of witches and fairies. Undastus This monstrous demon dwells primarily in large bodies of water, although it's been a hundred years or so. The last time an Undastus was spotted was deep down in the Mariana Trench. In fact, the last time this monstrous, enormous lizard shark was spotted, it inspired stories and legends that eventually helped influence Godzilla. It highly resembles the modern shark, but bigger, scarier, with more rows of teeth and is far, far more intelligent. Because it only resurfaces every 100 to 200 years, not much is known about this particular demon but fellow catalogers like myself think it emits a certain sound, almost like a whale's call. But instead of something soft, serene, this particular sound will cause humans to throw themselves overboard or take the entire ship with them. It doesn't even eat humans. It eats plankton. We suspect it just enjoys the kill. Montyrum. This demon is found primarily in mountainous terrain. Appalachian, Rocky, and the Sierra Nevada. These demons are unusually unique as they don't seem to enjoy the thrill of the hunt for humans. They instead focus their diet on local fauna, wild goats, deer, etc. The grizzly bear especially is one of their favorite snacks. Over the years, we've become pretty lenient with these demons, and it's only when they accidentally cross paths with a human backpacker is when they're put back on the radar. The Monterum are typically between 15 feet tall and close to 700 pounds, with either pure white or dark black fur, and standing on two legs. The occasional human sighting and those that manage to get away have fueled the Yeti and Bigfoot legend. Does the Bigfoot exist? If it did, the Monterum probably ate it. Increasingly throughout the past few years, the Monterum have started coming down from their mountain layers and snatching people at the edge of cities. Is it the climate affecting the migration patterns of their usual diet of wild goats? Is it the wildfires? We're still not sure. Just over the last five years, we've recorded several instances of this happening in Denver, Colorado. As of last week, the Crown has moved this to our priority case. But I yes, I've saved you the best for last. We call it the Umbra, or the Dark. Even now, 500 years later, I still find myself terrified of this one. I've only encountered it one time, and I still can't remember much from that day. In fact, there's not even much to learn about this demon from the books. Fellow catalogers recall encounters with this entity and the following PTSD proves to be too much with high counts of memory loss, mental hospitalization, and even worse. Here's what I know. 1. It takes the form of a tall, dark, faceless man. 2. It likes to hide in dark spaces, such as in closets or under beds. And 3. If it catches you, it likes to make a bargain. Give me something you love and I'll let you live. My colleague survived an encounter with an umbra. It was the same day that I had encountered it. 
We had been battling a hogmoth in an abandoned mall in southern Kentucky. It was big, ugly, and resisted all efforts to subdue it and sent it back to its home dimension. We called in reinforcements, more cousins, and had retreated to the loading dock to wait while the hogmoth tore up an old navy in eclairs. This is where it gets fuzzy for me. I remember rushing in and scrambling to barricade the gate behind us. The hogmoth had been following us, so we took extra care to chain the two parts of the gate together. A small gap was left, because in our haste, we couldn't get the chain tight enough around the broken lock. I can still remember how cold the metal felt under my fingers. Odd, considering it was the height of summer in southern Kentucky. There are three things that happened next. One, we heard rustling behind us. I could feel my co-worker turn to look. Two, I felt him suddenly freeze. Now listen, this man doesn't freeze. A hardened vet and a beast of a man. He had been in the game for longer than I had been alive. And that's saying something, considering that I'm north of almost 500 years old. But on that day, I felt him freeze like a mouse, trapped under a hawk's gaze. And three, like a child, I felt myself being picked up and shoved through the small gap that we left in the fence. The fence tore large gouges in my face, neck, and chest, but it was nothing in comparison to the agony I heard in my colleague's screams. And then I blacked out. I woke up a month later in the ICU unit in a rural Kentuckian hospital. I had no identification on me, and in the chaos that the hogmoth left behind that day, there had been no one left to check on me. After I woke up, I tore out the central catheter and made my way home. I learned what had become of the fate of my colleague. He was gone, of course. He was a strong man and he wasn't willing to let someone he loved be taken by the Umbra. For as much as we still don't know about the Umbra, we do know what happens when one of us is taken. For the Umbra is unique, in that it's the only demon that will take you back to the dimension that it comes from, and nothing good happens there, especially to your flesh, your heart, and your soul. His daughter knows. Once a year on the anniversary of her father's death, the Umbra visits her and shows her exactly what has happened to her father. And on that day, the Umbra gives her a choice. You are something that he loves. Give me you and I'll let him live. So far, as far as I'm aware, she has said no. I'm not sure which one I'm more afraid of. The Umbra itself, or someone I thought I loved letting the Umbra take me. But that's enough monster stories for now. In the meantime, I've got loads of case files to finish, a full dishwasher needing emptying, and piles of laundry left over from my last excursion. My little two-bedroom, two-bathroom flat needs a sturdy cleaning, and my little black kitten named Spooky needs a bath. He occasionally spits fire, so I'll see how all this goes. Man, you should have seen my buddies when I walked into work last week. It turns out the last phenomena and observation file, the one that I had posted previously, ended up making quite a few laps around to the water cooler, much to the dismay of my superiors. Normally case files like this are made public, as the sheer scale of the damage and loss of human life is not meant for public consumption, 
and could potentially open the crown up to damaging lawsuits. My superiors were mad enough to spit fire, literally. And then, the absolute cherry on top, the bit I wrote about letting the human girl go. Apparently that small, inconsequential detail got copy-pasted onto some orange-haired, Love Island wannabe a trolls gossip page and it went viral. Luckily at that point, the cousins had gotten wind of what was happening downstream and went full executioner style and censored my name from everything. Also, I didn't realize it was happening at the time, but apparently the troll had gone full survivor meet to Hunger Games and created a reality type TV show that attempted to find that human girl. That troll, along with the help of a few weasel-faced producers, rounded up terrified humans that fit the description, my description, and attempted to find the next Katniss Everdeen by testing their skills against the dreaded Hargmond. Yeah, apparently they all died, including the producers, and they never did find the girl. Nah, anyways, Finn, Dingo, and Rodney, my friends and fellow hunters, got a huge kick out of it. We were at work when the news broke, and the group chat went crazy. My man, Dingo texted, your name is everywhere. Okay, it's not Dingo, I replied. You can see that I've been scrubbed. It doesn't matter, dude, Rodney exclaimed. You're famous. Guys, chill. I know I messed up. Ha, that was Finn. A man of few words, Finn is. Live a little man, this is cool as heck, Dingo texted. The human's heck, of course, and not ours. Think of how many Dixies we'll get when we drop this on him. No thanks. I exited the chat after that bit. It was funny though. Out of all the reactions to my little, I didn't think in a million years anybody would see this, but oops, and now it's gone viral mistake. The one that hit the hardest wasn't the one that I expected. Wallace Jones, feared a monster hunter, teddy bear hugger, man who taught me how to shoot my first gun, my godfather, the man who raised me after my parents had passed away. Also, fun fact, the brother of the current reigning Prince of the Crown. He called me last night, absolutely furious. I could practically see the smoke coming from my device as he obliterated me from halfway across the world. Hello, I... You wrote about us. I... And on the internet, Fremont... His voice was tinny as it erupted from my phone. I, I can explain. Explain? He sighed heavily. How? How can you explain this? What in Misha's name were you thinking? I... The crushing guilt finally caught up and trapped me in steely jaws as the event from the last week had washed over me. I guess I didn't think anyone would ever see it. Another long sigh... It sounded like he was going through a tunnel. Look, I... I hated disappointing him. I'd say anything, everything to move the crushing stone of guilt from my chest. Look, I know it's not a good reason, but that's what I was thinking. My cat Spooky was twisting around my feet. I had literally just walked into my apartment and Wallace had called me before I had a chance to feed her. Another second spent waiting and she was going to light something on fire. Look. His tone suddenly shifted. 
and I could feel the stone sink deeper into my chest. The crown called me. The stone turned to ice. Your brother, you mean? Don't. His words cut through me. Don't sass me, boy. You'll get more details tomorrow, but due to the events surrounding your little publicity stunt. Okay, no, it wasn't. Oh, sorry, the idiocy situation you, an idiot, put yourself in. Okay, point taken. The crown has decided to keep a closer eye on you. You come in with me on a trip tomorrow. You'll get the details in the morning. My stomach plummeted and sank all the way to the ground. My throat closed up. I could barely squeak out a response to the booming voice on the other end. But I have yoga tomorrow, 9am, and uh, dinner reservations too. I sputtered. Who's up? Who's gonna watch Spooky? Spooky me out at the mention of her name. She was sitting at my feet and looking up at me. Her yellow eyes glowed, and the tips of her ears were beginning to smoke. I could hear Wallace laughing at the other end of the line. You still got that thing as a pet. I'm surprised it hasn't eaten you yet. Spooky suspiciously said nothing in return. 400 hours, boy. I'm sending the jet to pick you up. Be on the roof of your building by then or I'm taking the collar off, Spooky. You know, all UFO sightings by humans. Hovering lights spotted above cities and possibly fast aircraft darting past a U.S. Air Force. Suspiciously shaped aircraft in the shape of triangles or cigar tubes. Yeah, that's actually us. To date, every sighting of a UFO by a human dating back all the way to 1639 has actually been a crown aircraft. Does this mean that aliens don't exist? I haven't really thought about it, I guess. Those fleshy meatbags have such a fixation on that sort of thing. The sky god. The daddy god who lives in the mountain in the sky. Little green things flying down and sticking things up there. Anyways... Crown technology has always been very advanced. We had light bulbs when humans had fire. We had light speed rails when humans were first figuring out cars. And we've had flying technology since humans first started figuring out that seatbelts were a good idea and their newfangled driving death machine. That's how I was able to find myself hovering above Pijuratelagala, a mountainous region in Sri Lanka, about an hour after I was beamed up above my walk up in Brooklyn. I had barely had time to even enjoy my bagel. Strap in, Fremont, Wallace bellowed, his jacket and khaki pants flying everywhere, as they were tugged manically by the wind. Time to jump. Okay, for the record, I think this is a very bad idea. Wallace was bent over laughing, his hands on his knees. Let's go, boy, I don't think you'll enjoy the fall otherwise. Okay, you know I'm bad at this. Why don't you just beam me? But before I could finish, Wallace jumped out of the plane. I could see his little red parachute opening up miles below us. Beam me down, I sighed. It was quiet in the cabin, apart from the high-pitched whistling of the wind from outside the chute door. I looked longingly at the last bit of bagel for my breakfast. I was going to have to wait. I pulled my dreads back into a low pony and tightened the strap that held my glasses on my face. I thought I wasn't supposed to follow people if they jumped off a bridge. I grumbled to myself. 
but fine. I guess I'll jump. Fremont, now that wasn't so bad, was it? Wallace exclaimed. It took me a second to clear my head. When my eyes focused, I couldn't tell if he was upside down or if I was upside down. No, it was me. I was upside down. Uh, Wallace, I'm currently in a tree. That you are. He pulled out his machete. Let me help you down. No, no, please stop. Just help me untangle and I can... Thwack, thud. Oh, God. I hit the ground hard, twisting my shoulder. And the rest of my body followed. And I was twisted over myself, tumbling down a small embankment into what was most definitely a snake-filled pond. We had crash-landed into the jungle at the foot of the mountainous base. It was one of the largest peaks in Sri Lanka. It was hot and sticky, and there were also bugs everywhere. I freaking hate bugs. According to Wikipedia, this mountain, it was the tallest mountain in Sri Lanka. It is situated northeast of the town of Nawara Aliyah, and is easily visible for most areas of the central province. Its summit is home to the Central Communications Array of the Government of Sri Lanka, and armed forces and serves as an important point in the country's radar system. Hey, thanks Wikipedia. It's also, as I learned, home to the base of the Communications Array of the Sri Lankan Government and Armed Forces, which, as I also learned, has been witnessing an unprecedented rise of unexplained animal attacks and disappearances. It was mainly still unreported on, but there was a growing cry of panic echoed in the major news outlets in Sri Lanka. Dina Mina was reporting on it, as was Lankadipa, even Ravaya. The notorious celebrity-hungry tabloid was printing about the disappearances. We were here to figure out what was happening. Most of the attacks were clustered around the southernmost tip of the bays, which is where we were heading now. Coincidentally, that's also where the communications and the electricity base was. The armed forces were mainly sequestered in the northern and western parts of the square grid. Most of the disappearances were workers tending to the power grid. When something would go dark, they would send somebody out. Except now, no one was coming back. When I couldn't figure out on the plane ride over was, how were people disappearing? I mean, the base was literally armed to the teeth. After all, they had put this massive power and communications grid in a jungle filled with already terrifying creatures, thrown an occasional civil conflict or two, and they had figured out how to protect this thing. Tall, thick walls encircled the entire base. Barbed wire ran thickly across the walls. Plus, the workers were inside the grid when they had disappeared. What was getting them? Wallace, I whined. Wallace, are we almost there yet? We had been walking for what felt like hours. The terrain was steep, the jungle was thick, and I was wearing white suede tennis shoes. Hey Wallace, you could have given me a heads up that we were going to be hiking. Wallace swung the machete hard. Hiking is good, he grunted. Be stronger. But why couldn't we have jumped out of the plane a little bit closer to our destination? Would have alerted the humans. He grunted, pulling down a vine. Needed to be far out. A flock of birds flew up, scaring me. I missed my little Brooklyn flat. I miss Spooky. 
I missed. I slipped hard. My left leg slipped out from underneath me, pulling me down into something disgusting. Oh god, I yelled. Is this what I think it is? Oh god, it is. It's crap. Wallace. I held my hands up. They were covered in gooey, reddish-brown clumps that smelled like weak-old roadkill on an Arizona highway. Wallace, help me out here. I saw him wheel around. Boy, if you don't get your... He stopped. I saw all the color drain from his face. His dark skin went ashy. What? I whimpered softly. My throat clenched. What is it? Get up. What? I said get up. Wallace grabbed my arm hard and pulled me from it. I tried not to wince as my white tennis shoes made a soft shlunking as I was pulled upright. Wallace, what the heck's going on? I know what that is. He was wheeling around his machete out. My blood ran cold and the jungle seemed to drop at 10 degrees. The flock of birds that I heard calling earlier had gone quiet. We were underneath the thick canopy that moments ago had been filled with buzzing, flicking flies, cicadas, crawling worms, and more. Now it felt like we were standing in a cemetery. Suddenly, I realized what I was looking at too. It was the base. With the adrenaline pumping through me, my mind cleared and I suddenly realized just how close we were to the site of the disappearances. It's just crap. And whose crap is that? While well, I pondered that for a second. Well, it isn't mine. He looked back at me. The look in his eyes scared me silent. Monterom. I felt like the breath was knocked out of me. Here? Here, take this. He pulled a gun from his backpack and threw it to me. We need to move quickly. Wait. I almost dropped it. You brought a gun? I thought we were just doing recon. We're running to the base. We'll be safer inside those walls. With how scared I was and with how much adrenaline I had pumping through me, I had almost forgot about how much demon poop was drying on my skin. Almost. Safer, wait. But people were disappearing on the inside. If a monterum catches us out here, we'll be torn apart. We're running in three. One. Wait, huh? Two. Wallace, I. Three. Wallace took off running. For being almost 900 years old, that man is fast. I took off after him. No more using the machete. We ran full tilt into the thick foliage of the jungle. Branches hit us across the face. Thorns dug deep gouges into our arms and legs. Uprooted tree roots threatened to trip us. We didn't fall once with the sheer panic that was keeping us going. We were so close, almost there. I could see the walls looming ahead of us. I was bleeding profusely from the thick scratch across my chest. The white wife beater was soaked with my blood. I didn't want to think about all the infectious diseases that were most certainly inside it. My ankle twisted hard as we pushed through a particularly thick ring of trees and I almost tripped over another road. But as I pushed through, my hand suddenly felt... nothing. I fell to my knees... No more trees and no more roots, or any thick branches hitting me. I looked around and it looked like a clearing. Specifically, a clearing underneath the base's walls. I felt a surge of hope. We made it. Fremont, 
Wallace came rushing over. I found a door, it's heavy and steel, but I think I can pick it. I put the kid in your backpack, if you could just... He paused and his hand on my shoulder, and then he went still. With a sinking feeling, I realized that the birds had gone silent too. What? I started to whisper. His hand tightened on my throat. It was silent in the clearing, apart from some faint rustling to my left. Fighting the urge to vomit, I turned to look. It was the most monstrous thing that I had ever seen. A towering, massive creature, 15, maybe 18 feet tall. But the smell was what hit you first, bloody and ripe. Like an open wound, packed full of flies and maggots, left out in the hot sun to fester and blister. It was walking on all fours, its hands dragging like an ape's. It was searching for us. Its shaggy head swaying back and forth as its black beady eyes tried to see in the dark. It was probably close to 1,000 pounds. It had the chest of a bulldog and the arms and head of an overgrown ape. It had thick white fur. It was densely matted and stained dark brown around the mouth, its chest and its hands. It had opposable thumbs too, which I noticed as it easily ripped a 20-foot eucalyptus tree and tossed it aside. The crash shook the forest. Dang, I kind of wish I had my tape recorder right now. In a blinding shock, I realized something. Everything that I had read about the Amantaram had always mentioned that this demon type was more tolerated than others. That these demons were allowed to live more or less freely in the forest and the mountains. So long as they continued their steady diet of goats, pigs, and other wildlife and livestock. Or maybe I realized... It was because no one wanted to follow them into the mountains to kill them. I started hyperventilating as it sniffed the air and crawled closer. Being in the field is the one thing, but I'm an observer most of the time. I'm in a nearby coffee shop, typing up notes while my cousins, the lean, mean, and let's face it, insane fighting machines that took care of the demons. For Amisha's sake, I do the paperwork. I was going to die. It's blind, Wallace whispered. What? Look at its eyes, it's been blinded. I forced myself to focus, and that's when I noticed it. A horrific, thick band of scar tissue ran diagonal across its face. Starting from the right temple, it dug a deep hole that cut directly through its right eye, its nose and below its left eye, and through its left ear too. The scar tissue was bubbly and a deep, dark red, the height of the Mataram is famously thick. It would take something strong to break through the skin like that. Misha above, what, what did that? My guess is another Mataram, a bigger one. I nearly passed out. A bigger one. There's a door, Wallace whispered. His voice was almost completely silent. A steel door to your left. I looked and I could see it. So far away, I squeaked. That's our only shot. I felt my mouth go dry. It was at least 50 feet away and locked, I'm sure. Wallace, I'm, I'm not going to make it. His grip tightened on my shoulder. Yes, you can. I can. I'm not as fast as you. It felt like he could tear my shoulder right off. Fremont, if you don't run, I won't run. I looked up at him through tear-filled eyes and I could see that he was crying too. After all we've been through, I'm not leaving here without you, boy. I'm three, I whispered. 
Three. Slowly but surely, like the incoming tide, feeling began to seep back into my hands and feet. My right hand twitched. I flexed it. It didn't feel weak anymore. One, I whispered. Two, I prepared myself to run. The Mataram was literally a foot and a half away from us, its horrifically ravaged face sniffing the air. Three, suddenly, in a blur of noise, teeth and claws, a second Mataram ripped Wallace away from me. Run, Fremont! Wallace was in the Mataram's jaw, struggling to hold up the ten-inch teeth from puncturing him. The demon's tongue, rubbery and vile, was hooked around him, trying to pull him downward into its throat. I could see Wallace trying to go for his sword. I was strapped to his waist, uselessly caught underneath his flailing body. Run for the door, Fremont. Get out of here. I can't leave you. The gun. Wallace's gun. A Smith & Wesson M&P shield M2, but modified with a little crown technology. Able to take down packs of Hargmonts, outfitted with a magical lethal and endless clip. I scrambled for it. My back to the wall, my fingers tracing the metal body trying to find the safety. The monster roared again. Crap. The first, Mantra on the blind one, finally caught wind of where I was. It was charging straight towards me, the demon going into attack mode. Its engorged body was standing in an upright position, running on two legs as its claws retracted outwards. It was drooling long, thick ropes of drool clung to its body slicking down its blood-stained fur. The safety, I flicked it. Boom. It caught its shoulder. It flinched, but it didn't slow down. Boom, bam. Nothing. It hit the ground for a second, but shook it off easily. I swear that I just saw it laugh at me. The Monterum are notoriously extremely difficult to take down. Books upon books have been written about their fierceness, their animal-like ability to take pain and keep fighting. Legends have been inscribed in history about entire mountain ranges being decimated when two male Mataram get caught in a heat-soaked battle over a female. If this overgrown, two-stuffed Build-A-Bear thinks it's taken me down, it's got another thing coming. It screeched again. Wallace had pulled free of his demon's mouth. He had one hand deep in that thing's eye and was using its eye socket to pull himself free. It was screeching a horrible noise that caused a terrible ringing sensation in my ears. Fremont, duck. I ducked. Another screech. Wallace had thrown a sword. It flew over me and stabbed my mantrum directly in the air. Noise it made knocked me to my knees. Wallace gave a hard yank. The sword, which was attached to Wallace's belt with a retractable leash, started to drag the mantrum to him. Fremont, the gun. Shoot it again. Boom. Nothing. Another boom. Nothing. It struggled like a fish on a hook. Thrashing about, its violence was absolutely breathtaking. Blood pouring from its ear, the blind Monterum was going berserk. Its claws were fully extended and annihilating everything in its path. The other Monterum was caught in the middle of that. Wallace was standing on the second Monterum's shoulder, dragging the other one to it. Its claws caught the face of the second Monterum tearing it open. In pain, the second demon reached up, grabbed Wallace, and threw him off. Wallace flew twenty yards, tumbling over himself before hitting the wall hard. Wallace! He wasn't moving. 
My heart leapt to my throat. Something had cracked when he hit the wall. No, 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 no. Wallace. With a sickening, squishing sound, the blind Monterum pulled the sword from its ear. A gush of red spouted after it. It shook its head, red flying everywhere, before tossing the sword towards the lifeless body of Wallace. Come on, Wallace, get up! I screamed. I turned to see both Monterum beginning to stand up. The violence that Wallace had inflicted on both was absolutely devastating. They were in terrible shape. Blood was smeared everywhere. It was still gushing from the blind one's ear, and it was dripping from the broken eye socket on the other. Its eye was hanging out, dangling about like a minnow caught in a bobber. Crap, I said again quieter this time. I checked the gun. Boom, I caught the big one on the shoulder. The blind one ducked behind and started to go around. It jumped and started to crawl vertically along the wall. Ah, so that's how the disappearances were happening from the inside. Boom, clink. I missed. Instead of the demon, the bullet caught the steel window near the top. Wallace, wake up! More shots. Both Monterum were advancing. I was backed up against the wall. The concrete wall dug into my back. The steel rivulets digging painfully into me. I had knocked the blind Monterum off the wall, but not before it had caught me with a chunk of concrete that it had ripped off the side. The concrete chunk had torn open my left shoulder and I was bleeding profusely. I could feel the strength draining from me as every second passed by. I needed a plan and fast. I looked around, the jungle was to my left and darkness had fallen and by this point, the jungle's shadows had deepened and by human standards, it looked absolutely impenetrable. But my kind, well, we work best in the dark. I had an opening. If I could lead them into the jungle, I would have a better chance of losing them in the darkness. Then I could circle back to where Wallace still lay lifeless. I would grab him and hopefully find that distress button he should have on him. What if he wasn't? Stop, I shook my head. I couldn't think about that right now. I started backing up towards the jungle. The blind one wouldn't be able to follow and the second Monterum would probably stay behind to finish the weakened one off. They were notoriously not pack creatures. They preferred to roam independently or sometimes with a mate. It was astonishing that there were two males I assumed in the same area right now, let alone working together to take us down. I snorted. Just our luck. Hey, idiots. Both looked at me or well tried to. Yeah, that's right. Follow me, you freaking sewer rats. I kept backing up. They both fell on four legs and started to crawl after me. It was working. Follow me, come get me. We were inches away from the forest and I was prepared to bolt knowing that they would chase after me. The blood loss was bad and I could feel myself losing strength, but I gritted my teeth and prepared to run. I steadied myself and counted to three. One. Two. I suddenly thought of Spooky. If this doesn't work, somebody better feed her. I muttered to myself. Three. Multiple crashes. Move. Suddenly, a small black figure came blazing out of the forest. I was knocked down, my butt hitting the ground hard as I struggled to avoid flying debris. My head was spinning, and I shook it several times trying to clear it. My vision was still a little blurry from how hard that I was hit, but my eyes focused in time to see the large, vicious mantra locked in combat with this figure. 
What are you doing? I yelled. I was struggling to keep my eyes open. Wallace, where was Wallace? I needed to get to Wallace. The figure was dressed entirely in black and they had on a large, long black overcoat, which whirled behind them as they fought to keep the Matram off me. Two long black swords at the rough sparks with every hit against the Matram's thick skin. What are you doing? Stay down, they yelled at me. The person was struggling. They were taking hit after hit. Wallace and I had barely been able to handle both and this person was trying to take both down now. Suddenly, the person was thrown at 30 feet in the air and fell hard against the trees. And suddenly, it was very, very quiet in the clearing. I gulped. Now, it was just me and two very upset Monterum. Laughing. The Monterum were laughing at me. Die. It raised its hand, all ten claws extended, and I closed my eyes. In the dark from behind my closed eyes, suddenly everything was filled with a painful, bright red light. It was a searing pain. My eyes felt like they had been burned, like somebody had turned the sun on high and I was caught looking at it. I struggled to open them. Get down! The person, a woman, ripped off the big black hood she had over her face. In between her eyes sat a large, bright red crystal. It was embedded into her brown skin and it was smoking. Stay down, she screamed, and she shot an enormous electric red beam of light from the center of her forehead. It sliced through the matram. She cut an enormous gash through the center of the demon's face and they turned to run, like enormous, overgrown, insanely vicious puppies. They tucked their tails between their legs and they ran. I couldn't handle this. From the blood loss to the fight to the enormous bolt of energy that was shot from her face, I could feel myself starting to shut down. I heard her run over. Through my narrowing vision, I saw her bend down. My name's Aja, she said, before everything went black. Seems like I got here just in time. I'm a dumpster diver, and I found some strange things in my dives. Written by that one city in China. I grew up in a pretty poor household. When you grow up poor, you learn not to waste anything or take anything for granted. At least that's what I tell my wife, who's constantly nagging me to take care of my hoarding issues. Certain habits followed me even as I became an adult with a steady job. I still make sure to squeeze the last bit of toothpaste from the tube. I tend to ignore the expiration dates on my aspirin and Benadryl. And I still try to solve all my problems with duct tape that I dug out from the bins of a nearby hardware store. That of course won't clean up the garage full of junk that I have, as Gina calls it. People think that dumpster diving is shameful or embarrassing, but that couldn't be further from the truth. I learned very quickly from a young age that people are inherently wasteful. Grocery stores throw out products that are close to their expiration dates. College move-out dates are treasure troves for TVs and organizer bins. I have accidentally come across rare jewelry from yard sales where families were tossing their dead grandmother's belongings. You get the picture. Just as a disclaimer, not everything you find in a dumpster is edible or even viable. 
Sometimes you get moldy fruit, blackened veggies, slightly opened bags of chaps, mattresses with bed bugs, furniture beyond repair, and you really just have to let those go. You eventually learn to differentiate between one man's trash and another man's treasure. But some things you find in dumpsters and on the streets have inexplicable origins. I found some weird things in dumpsters that I've saved over the years and forgot about until recently. Now, as I clean my garage up, I want to share some of these strange knickknacks that I've accumulated over the years. Because I feel like this place would appreciate them. I'll start with something that gave me nightmares for a week. Gina forced me into the garage and told me that she wouldn't let me back into the house until at least a corner of the garage was completely Marie Kondoed. Looking at the messy, cluttered garage, it gave me a headache. But I suppose it was a headache that I started. I'll admit, I do have a hoarding problem and it was only made worse by years of accumulating things from various dumpster dives. I sifted through boxes and boxes of baseball cards, old sneakers, rollerblades, and raggedy clothes, all the while asking myself if any of these items brought me joy. The answer was no. Most of the items were pretty much junk that I thought would be useful at some point. After a few hours of sorting through stuff, I finally happened across something interesting. At the very bottom of the pile was an old vintage Polaroid camera and its original packaging and everything. This one brought up a lot of memories. My first girlfriend, Sally Herman. My first kiss and my first breakup. I found this in 06 in a dumpster bin behind a local camera store. I snuck beyond the store to scour through its bins out of sheer boredom and curiosity, and seemingly hit gold. Nestled in between black garbage bags was this Polaroid camera. It looked to be in good condition and was in its original packaging and everything. I figured this would be a nice birthday gift for Sally, who just so happened to be getting into photography at the time. To put the icing on top too, a bunch of new film was tossed right next to the Polaroid. It was perfect, or so I had thought. Sally was ecstatic. She had been wanting a nice Polaroid for a long time. She didn't need to know that I basically got it for free. She wanted to use it right away, so we drove to a nearby beach to take some nice pictures. Charlie, look here. Sally quickly snapped a picture of me while the cold beach water lapped at my feet. I wasn't ready. I laughed. She pulled the film from the slot and began to shake it. Take some of me, she demanded, pushing the camera into my hands. I snapped a few photos of her, with the ocean in the background. We took random pictures of the scenery. We even turned the camera and tried to squeeze into the small frame and take one together. This was a time before iPhones and selfies became ubiquitous, so we had to be creative. It would have been a great day, had the film not given us issues. They're not developing. Sally's eyebrows scrunched up as she continued to shake the film. I give it a few seconds. I heard you're not supposed to shake it, I said. You're supposed to keep it away from light. Tuck it under your armpit. Oh. Sally muttered as she put the Polaroid between her armpits awkwardly. We stood in silence for a moment before she shook it out again, only to be disappointed by the blank film. That's so weird. 
I brought the Polaroid closer to my face to examine it. It certainly seemed flawless, aside from the dented box that I had found it in. Maybe there was something wrong with it after all. It looks like it's faulty merchandise. Where did you get this from? Celia asked. Maybe we can return it. Oh, you know, the camera store in the corner of Maine and Maple. Oh, you mean Fred's cameras and imaging. Sally seemed confused. Charlie, that place closed down a few months ago. Huh, no way, I was there just yesterday. Yeah, Fred and my dad are buddies. He had to close the shop because of the rat infestation from the Italian place right next door. It's pretty much just an empty storefront. After a long conversation, Sally figured out that I didn't, in fact, purchase this camera, and I was forced to admit that I had found it in a garbage bin behind the store. I lost my first girlfriend that day and a bit of my pride, but I gained a broken camera and the useful knowledge of never regifting dumpster finds to a girl ever again. The strangest thing was, I distinctly remembered seeing someone behind the cash register through the glass windows of the store. It wasn't Fred, but there was definitely someone there, and the store didn't look empty at all. In fact, it looked like it was still in business. I remember that I had to be sneaky about going to the bins beyond the store because I didn't want to be caught. But when I went back later that day, the store was indeed empty, and the bins were completely barren as well. And that was quite an unwanted trip down memory lane. I sighed as I dug through the Polaroid box for those pictures. After that disastrous date, I had stashed the Polaroid and the blank films into the box and I shoved it where the light didn't shine. I never wanted to look at them again but figured I may as well try to check if they had magically developed over the years and give myself something to laugh about and cringe over. The films weren't blank anymore. I did a double take, confused as all heck as I scanned the films. I knew my memory wasn't failing me. These films were blank when we had checked in the beach and they were most definitely blank when I shoved them into the box all those years ago. They were faded and dusty, but they were reminiscent of the pictures we took that day. The picture of me being caught off guard, pictures of Sally posing, the selfie of us, but they just weren't quite right. There was no ocean in the background and in fact, it didn't seem like we were at the beach at all. Instead, the film showed as something strange. The picture of me caught off guard seemed blurred out, and all you could see was a vague silhouette against a hazy, burgundy red background, almost like a sunset, even though we were at the beach on a sunny afternoon. I would have chalked it up to faulty film if it weren't for the fact that as each single shot of Sally progressed, her facial expressions began to look increasingly concerned. I distinctly remember her laughing for the photos, and the concerned expressions on her face in the photographs were beginning to send chills down my back. The selfie of us was more focused on a frowning Sally, with my face blurred out into the side. All of the pictures were definitely from that day, yet they also weren't at the same time. I grabbed the Polaroid, turning it around to examine it from different angles. It looked just as new as it did when I had given it to Sally, save for the dust that had accumulated on the surface. 
I peered into the lens, shook it around a bit, opened the battery compartment. Nothing had changed. I pressed the button on the Polaroid in an attempt to see if it still worked. But to my surprise, it actually began to print out a picture. But before I could put it down, more pictures suddenly spat out of the camera. I struggled to keep the pictures from haphazardly scattering across the floor as the Polaroid rapid spat out photograph after photograph. I figured maybe the camera was backed up on photos, if that was even possible, but after all this time when no one had used it in years. The camera seemed to be on in auto capture mode as it finally spent the last of its film, as I heard a strange winding down sound. The camera then shut down. I tried pressing the button again, but nothing happened. The pictures began to develop in my hands and I held my breath as I saw what formed on the little square films. All the pictures involved a Sally in some way or another. I tried my best to arrange the photographs in the way that they were spat out. The first few films seemed relatively innocuous for a camera that just randomly spat out pictures that I didn't take. They were all of Sally, but from perspectives that suggested she wasn't aware of the photographs being taken. One was of Sally at her college graduation, talking to her friends. Another was of Sally waiting for the bus and staring off into the streets. Another showed Sally playing baseball from a strange angle. And another was of Sally checking the mail in front of her childhood home. She looked somewhat upset and bothered in each photo. I immediately felt sick as I realized she wasn't aware in any of these photos that she was being photographed. It felt as though I was stalking her in some way. The next film showed a long, winding road with what looked like an older Sally standing in the middle of a long, barren road, again pressed against a hazy red background. Her facial expression was indecipherable. The next few films after that showed a cornfield, an eerie shot of a scarecrow, and a broken-down shed with a decrepit windmill looming next to it. There were only a few films to check after that. Even though I felt that something was terribly wrong, I pressed on. And I really wished that I hadn't. The ninth film showed Sally sleeping on what looked like a haystack, with her hands and feet tied up and her mouth gagged with cloth. The tenth showed her awake and terrified, the flash of the Polaroid illuminating her features and accentuating her horrified eyes. As I got closer to the end, the photos became more and more erratic, with strange and shaky blurred angles that suggested a struggle. The thirteenth and final film was what terrified me the most. The face of a washed-out man peered into the lens of the camera. A set of hollow eyes and a bulbous nose looked back at me from a strange angle that suggested whoever was behind the camera was taking a picture of himself. But his eyes seemed to go beyond the frame of the photograph, and they peered into my own, as if he was examining me, watching me, and studying me. I threw the Polaroid down on the floor and immediately pulled up my phone to look up Sally on Facebook. With shaky hands, I scrolled through various Sally Hermans until I found one who remotely looked like Sally as an older woman. If what the pictures had suggested was even remotely reflected of reality... She was in trouble. After I had moved away from my small town and started a family of my own, I fell out of contact with almost all my old friends, 
As such, I had no idea what was going on with their lives. I decided this was worth reconnecting with an ex-girlfriend over here to try and figure out what these photographs were about and to make sure that she was okay. There were definitely sinister forces at play here. What I wasn't expecting, however, was for her Facebook profile to read, Remembering Sally Herman. Kala's post littered her Facebook wall saying things like, You will be missed forever, and rest in peace. Pictures of her and her friends smiling at graduation, of her playing baseball with her teammates, of her with a boyfriend in front of a cafe near a bus station, and her in front of her child at home with her brother were displayed. This was most definitely Sally, and if it was, then the worst case scenario had already happened. I began scouring the post for any hints of what had happened. Was it a disease, a freak accident, self-inflicted? I turned to Google for the answer that I was so afraid to come to terms with. Sure enough, there was an obituary for Sally in various news articles about how she had gone missing one day, only to have turned up in an abandoned shack in the middle of nowhere. It was clearly ruled out as her doing it to herself and labeled as a homicide. They had found her in a body bag, with absolutely no signs of blunt force trauma, suffocation, or any sign of a typical murder. Authorities suggested that she may have died of shock, or a poison that didn't turn up in the autopsy report. The article stated that the perpetrator was still on the loose and that any evidence that could lead to the capture of the murderer would be rewarded with a hefty sum of money. I shut my phone off and shoved it back into my pocket, immediately leaving the garage and the Polaroids on the floor. I needed to gather myself and process everything that I had just seen. The shack that Sally was found in looked exactly like the one in the Polaroid, next to the windmill that was falling apart. A picture of the road directly aligned with the Polaroid that I had. Anybody with half a brain would have pinned the blame on me for having such questionable photos of Sally in the first place, and I would have had no actual substantive explanation to give them. No one would have believed my story. I knew that I had stumbled across something I wasn't supposed to see, and I also knew that I had to get rid of everything. I dang near had a heart attack when I went back to the garage. My wife was picking the Polaroids off the floor, grumbling about how she always does everything in the house. I attempted to explain what they were and what had happened in the time she was gone. Gina looked confused, only stopping me to ask why I was freaking out over a bunch of blank Polaroid films. Sure enough, when she handed me the Polaroids, all the films seemed to be wiped clean of everything that I saw. And look, I know that I'm not crazy. I know what I saw. I trust my memory. Which is why when Gina asked if she could keep the vintage camera, I said no and immediately threw it out. I wish I could say that was the weirdest thing that I found, but there have certainly been weirder things that I've come across. In the meantime, if you're going to dumpster dive, be careful and be picky. You never know what you'll find. A lot of memories that I had repressed seemed to be resurfacing as I clean up my garage. I could go into detail about the rocking chair that rocks on its own, or the Furby that I picked up from a yard sale that is most definitely haunted. 
But today I'm going to be telling you about a strange television I found back in my college years. I mentioned in my last post that college move-out dates are a godsend for dumpster diving, and I stand by that. I used to room near a wealthy private university that rhymes with kale, where students are either secured by trust funds or incredibly intelligent. I've witnessed my fair share of entitled, wealthy 20-something-year-olds casually throwing on mini-fridges, vacuums, and televisions right onto the curbside for the garbage men to pick up. Fun fact, over the years, I've amassed a collection of mini-fridges currently sitting in my basement, each stocked with a different brand of beer. It's probably the best thing that I own. Plus, the Dyson vacuum cleaner I picked up from a sorority mansion still works perfectly well. Now, I didn't go to this particular university mostly because I couldn't afford it even if I was smart enough to get in, and also because I was definitely not smart enough to get in. But I did go to a pretty decent state school nearby where I roomed with three different guys in a house specifically set aside for student living. Reggie, Max, and Jake were my roommates all throughout college because we happened to click pretty well. The three of us had similar interests, similar majors, and similar regular sleep schedules. I'm proud to say that I was the one who introduced them to dumpster diving, and the rest was pretty much history. And we still make an effort to hang out almost every year. Every summer, the rich kids would dump a bunch of stuff outside, and so we spent those warm summer nights combing through the streets and loading up Reggie's pickup truck with microwaves, dressers, storage bins, and futons. Sorority houses were good targets for things like palm pilots and butterfly chairs. Frat houses supplied boom boxes and Walkmans. We had no shame in absolutely all the time in the world. We would head to the campus dorms in the middle of the night to grab the discarded frozen foods in the dumpsters behind the dorms. The amount of microwavable food thrown out by wasteful college kids was enough to feed a small village. And we managed to survive off frozen veggies, instant rice, Eggo waffles, Totinos, and Top Pockets for a month. Our house was a strange amalgamation of various things that we had picked up from these streets and the bins, but we made it work and we had a good time doing it. Of course, not everything we picked up was good, and the television was a prime example. It was a hot day in August and we were vegging out on the couch. We were stoned out of our minds and munching down on some pizza rolls and Snickers that we found in the bin of an Aldi's when Reggie burst through the front door. Kappa Sai is a TV outside their house, he yelled. Oh crap. We were tired of watching TV through the tiny retro TV we found at the dumpster of an electronics store, and none of us were truly satisfied with the grainy quality of the TV. We looked all summer for a decent television, but in that particular summer... The TV supply went dry. Luckily, Reggie had spotted the TV on his way back from his shift at Sonic, but it was too big for him to load up by himself. Back in those days, TVs were bulky and heavy. Flat screens weren't really a thing yet. I, the most sober between me, Jake, and Max, clambered into Reggie's truck and accompanied him to the Kappasai house, where the television sat gloriously on the curb, as if it was waiting for us. We had struck gold, or so we thought. As we struggled to load the TV into the back of Reggie's truck, a brother from the house came out, holding a can of beer and looking confused. You guys uh, need help, he called, leaning against the porch railing. 
Uh, Reggie and I looked at each other, but I was too blazed to come up with a response. Eh, we're good, I think. Sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. Saw you guys taking the TV and figured if you were going to take it, you might as well take the remote too. All good, dude. Actually, while you're here, do you know if this thing even works? I asked, tapping the screen. I mean, yeah, it still works, but apparently it's a little wonky. The brother shrugged, fishing the remote from his pocket. One of the brothers insisted that we just toss it out. What's wrong with the TV? Reggie asked. I'm not really sure. It honestly seems fine to me. All I know is the guy who owned it said the crap was haunted. And then he dropped out of school to check himself into a psych ward. But hey, it's all yours if you want it. With that, he tossed us the remote that went to the TV and went back inside. And we glanced at each other for a moment, shrugged and loaded the TV onto the car. What do you think he meant by wonky? Reggie wondered as we drove off. And a psych ward. Really? The guy probably watched a horror movie and it was too much for his fragile, sheltered brain. You know, Kappa's eyes full of dumb rich kids. I really didn't care about the guy's warning. All my stone to primal mind could think of was free TV. We spent a good hour hooking up the TV to the corner, trying to make sense of the wires and the cables. But we were finally able to get a picture on the screen after struggling for a bit and it was glorious. A good colored picture was hard to come by in those days, so this was a huge win. I went to the microwave to make more munchies while Max, Reggie, and Jake fiddled with the TV. Man, this TV has so many channels, Max said, flipping through various shows and static. The lower numbered channels were your typical news channels and sitcoms. As the channels went higher and higher, the shows became more and more unfamiliar. We caught glimpses of Spanish soap operas, auctions, infomercials, and Asian reality shows. But then something strange happened. Without warning, the channel numbers skipped from the 150s to the 400s. Confused, we continued to surf through various staticky channels until we got to channel 444. It just so happened to be airing the joy of painting in what was considered a full HD at the time. But something was off. A man took a seat in front of the canvas, surrounded by a pitch black background. He looked like Bob Ross. He had the afro, the beard, faded jeans, and the blue button-down. But when he turned to face the camera, you could tell that he was clearly not Bob. He donned the classic Bob Ross perma-smile as he began to mix the paint on his palette, slowly wiggling the brush around. The only colors on his palette were various shades of red and a blob of black paint. Soothing music filled the background. Welcome to the joy of painting, where none of us are mistakes, he muttered. He had a vague accent. Just happy little accidents. The man began to paint, but the scenery that he was painting was not at all serene. Instead of the peaceful orange sunset that he was using as a reference... He began to draw an unhappy face in blood-red paint. I don't want to draw a sunset today. Sometimes we don't have to draw what's expected of us. He mused. Sometimes we can draw whatever we want. Since when was Bob Ross like that? I asked, shocked at the sudden change of tone. Everyone shrugged. Use absolutely no pressure, he said. 
just like an angel's wing. Well, where was that when I was young, father? Where? The man's smile and volume reached an uncomfortable intensity as he began grinding his teeth to the point where his gums began to bleed. You can do anything you want in this world. Artists are allowed to be different. That's what he said. Once you help everyone around you get what they want, isn't that right? Isn't that right? His painting became increasingly erratic, and the pressure on the brush increased. The bristles on the brush began to break down as a fake bob smashed it against the canvas, with no care for the end result. I helped everyone, everyone in my life. They said we want happy paintings, we want sad things. Watch the news, watch the news well. I watched the news and I didn't like it. Not at all. The fake Bob screamed, crying and hyperventilating. The painting was no longer reminiscent of anything remotely close to a sunset. It was a haphazard mess of erratic brushstrokes and madness. You could see the whites of fake Bob's knuckles as he mashed the brush under the bristles spread out into a messy fan. The chaotic scene finally climaxed into fake Bob throwing his palette to the canvas and smearing it across the canvas, creating an ugly, angry mass of black and red. You can do anything you want to do. This is your world, fake Bob whispered. A mess of tears and snot as he tossed the palette and he marched off screen. Um, either we're smoking some weird stuff or that's not Bob Ross, Jake blinked sufficiently freaked out. Uh, I mean, you all saw that, right? That's not Bob Ross, idiot. Max rolled his eyes as he pressed the button on the TV to skip to channel 445. Probably just an independent movie with uh, some type of message. I don't know. In any case, the dude's got issues. Reggie remarked, clearly a little freaked out. The next channel featured what looked like a grayscale Barney and Friends. If Barney suffered from serious budget cuts. In fact, this didn't look like a typical episode at all. A man in a dirty, beat-up Barney mascot costume sat on a bench, lighting a cigarette between his purple paws. The show then cut to a shot of a group of children walking up to Barney, holding their arms out. As if this wasn't unsettling enough, a simple camera zoom showed that the children weren't kids at all. There were short adults dressed up in children's clothing, hair styled in pigtails and bowl cuts to resemble the children on the set of Barney. They all looked exhausted and terrified. The background music constituted of two piano notes being played on repeat. Barney hugged each of them one by one. Hello, children, he said. The voice was exactly the same as the voice of fake Bob Ross. Hi, Barney. They all mused in unison. A woman in braids and a frayed pink dress was the last one to approach Barney, arms visibly bruised and shaking. And the rest of the children stood silently in a line behind Barney. What are we learning today, Mr. Barney? She asked, a voice low and trembling. I noticed that she also had a vague accent. The Barney took off his mask, revealing the same man who was playing Bob Ross in the earlier channel. The man looked more haggard this time, no afro and beard. A five o'clock shadow replaced the Bob Ross beard, and a receding hairline replaced the afro. He took a long drag from his cigarette before putting the butt out on the girl's arm. 
today or learning about manners? Fig Barney replied as the girl winced. It is good manners for a woman to never complain, like Natalia here. Natalia is a good girl because she listens to Barney and does not whine like other women do. He put the head of Barney back on, and the music suddenly changed to a more joyful arrangement as he led the children to a playground for their lesson. One man, however, did not follow the rest of the group. Barney turned slowly, watching Dimitri fidget in place. Dimitri, what are you doing? Barney asked, voice gruff and impatient. Come here. I can't do this anymore, Dimitri said, and he began going off on a rant. The other children looked shocked and huddled together as Barney walked towards them. Barney put his paws on Dimitri's shoulder. Dimitri flinched. This was not a part of the deal, Dimitri. You're being a bad friend. Dimitri shook his head and admonished fake Barney in Russian. Barney shook his head as if he couldn't believe what was going on. He shushed Dimitri by caressing his face in his paws, saying something back in Russian, and then he slapped him across the face. Dimitri fell to the floor and Barney reached into his costume and pulled out a revolver. It all happened so quickly. Before we could even react, the camera quickly cut to the horrified expression of the other children as we heard multiple gunshots go off. By the time the gunshots stopped, the camera had cut back to Dimitri, who is now depicted as a blow-up doll with multiple bullet holes, dressed in Dimitri's clothing and surrounded by a pool of red. What the actual heck? I exclaimed and I heard Reggie whimper. I changed my mind. Today's lesson will be about obedience and being a good friend. Barney said joyfully. Bad friends who do not obey good friends who help them will never make it far in life. We should have just shut off the TV then and there, but the TV wouldn't let us turn it off. Max left the room muttering about how he needed to find a new weed dealer. Jake covered his eyes and groaned about how he was scarred for life. Reggie and I tried to manually turn the TV off, but it wouldn't budge, let alone change channels. The sobbing cast began to tentatively sing and dance to the classic Barney and Friends I Love You, You Love Me ending song, but in Russian. As they approached the end of the song, the scene abruptly cut to a circle of blow-up dolls vaguely dressed up in the children's clothing and wigs, lying on the floor with abandon. The Barney kicked around the blow-up dolls for a moment before crawling close to the camera, purple mask filling up the frame. And remember, friends, Vic Barney said, beady mask eyes looking directly into the camera. I love you. We desperately tried to change the channel, hoping to go back down to PBS documentaries and ABC sitcoms, but the TV wouldn't let us go down. With every click of the remote, the channels only went up and up, each channel featuring the same man every time, parodying famous sitcoms and movies. We saw the man drowning in a kiddie pool as Jack from Titanic, holding the hand of a blow-up doll meant to be Rose. The same man posed as a news anchor in a disheveled suit and messy wig, reporting on what looked to be the Chernobyl nuclear incident. There was a Sesame Street-esque show where dirty sock puppets with googly eyes seemed to be reciting random Russian words in unison, 
There is even a Christmas movie parody here, with the man painted completely in green and acting as the Grange. Each channel that followed became increasingly unsettling, if that was even possible. But the last channel was probably the worst of all. And just when we thought there was no end in sight, the TV would not let the channels go any higher. The actor was staring directly into her eyes, wearing an all-black bodysuit that covered the tip of his forehead all the way down to his toes. You do not enjoy my performances, he lamented. But why? Is he talking to us? Jake whisper yelled. Oh, of course it's channel 666, Reggie sighed. Why wouldn't it be? You change the channel, you try to turn off the TV. Even though I try so hard to entertain you, you are rude. I know you watch and I know you see me. We sat in silence as the man went off on an angry Russian rant. We didn't know what to do at this point. The TV wouldn't turn off and the channels wouldn't cooperate either. We felt somewhat entranced by this strange Russian man putting on a one-man show. Even if you ignore me, I'll be heard. I will not be silenced. I will be seen. With that, he reached his lanky fingers to his face where he began to pull on his bottom eyelids. He stretched on his eyelids until they began to rip from his face, groaning and sobbing the entire time. His tears mixed in with the red pouring out from his eyes. His long, dirty fingernails tore his face apart, revealing the muscles and even bone underneath. Jake started yelling obscenities as he fruitlessly tried to turn off the TV. Is this enough for you, is it? He wailed as he grabbed a knife off screen. But before we could watch what he was going to do with it, Max emerged from his room and threw his old boombox at the television. The TV sparked a few times, a static filling the screen, until it finally conked out. A crack filled the corner of the TV where the boombox hit it. The man's agonized screams broke up as the screen finally became black and everything was silent. We all looked at each other, jaws dropped and eyes wide with fear. We had literally just witnessed a man rip his face off. And if it weren't for Max, we may have been witnesses to an actual killing. We sat in total silence trying to digest everything that we had just seen. Any chance that was fake? Reggie asked softly, breaking the silence. I don't know, but I know for a fact that I'm never smoking again, Jake declared. The next day, everything seemed to be back to normal. The television started to play regular channels again, albeit with a visible crack. We were overly cautious with the TV afterwards, never going beyond Channel 15 in fear of being transported to those weird channels again. As for what happened afterwards, we actually ended up becoming the source of one of the most infamous urban legends in the college. The owners of the weird TV from Kappa Psi. Sure, we were traumatized for a while, but at the very least, we had an interesting story to tell at parties. And the quality of the TV was way too good to pass up. And yeah, any normal person would have thrown the TV away, but... We pretty much only had about three brain cells between the four of us and... Figured what had happened was a one-time thing that would never happen again. And luckily, we were right... We continued to use the TV throughout our college years and that man never appeared ever again. Nor did any of his freaky knockoff shows. 
And we even managed to find a cheap DVD player at a thrift store that we hooked up to the TV. But I could definitely see why the original owner of the TV dropped out of school and checked into a ward. As we graduated and all of us went our separate ways, we debated tossing the TV or saddling it with one of us. I volunteered to keep the TV for memory's sake and I took it with me. The TV was then buried under hockey sticks and old blankets in the corner of my garage. I had pushed most of my college years out of my brain, but the memories of that summer night came flooding back once I laid eyes on the cracked screen. I dragged the TV out from the corner to throw it out. It was still as gargantuan and cracked as it was in college. I half expected it to turn on and start playing those weird shows again, but nothing like that happened. As I pushed the TV out onto the curbside, I hoped no one but the garbage truck would try and grab this haunted TV from the early 2000s from the sidewalk. Out of sheer curiosity, I decided to hit up my old roommates about the television for old time's sake. I texted them a picture of the TV on the sidewalk as I walked back into the house, captioned, finally throwing this thing out. I didn't check on my phone until after dinner that night. But when I opened my phone, I was flooded with worried messages from the boys, telling me to look closely at the picture that I had sent. In the corner of the screen of the TV, I could just barely make out the silhouette of a pale man in a black bodysuit, the same bodysuit that the man wore as he tore his face apart. I immediately ran out to check on the TV, but it was no longer on the sidewalk where I had left it. My older brother Ernie came over the other day. He's the one who introduced me to dumpster diving. Ernie is currently in the process of moving to a new apartment, but he had a bunch of stuff from my childhood that he felt was too sentimental to throw out, so naturally he felt compelled to bring them over. Gina wasn't too thrilled about Ernie bringing another box of junk into our lives. On the other hand, our five-year-old daughter, Cece, was delighted by the contents. What's this egg-looking thing, Uncle Ernie? Cece had asked, holding up an old Tamagotchi from the box. When we were in grade school, Ernie and I had scored big on a bunch of defective Tamagotchis tossed in the garbage bins behind a Toys R Us. As it turns out, the only defective thing about them were the damaged packaging they came in. We managed to resell them at school for a hefty price. It's called a Tamagotchi, CC. Ernie clicked on one of the three tiny buttons, bringing it back to life. It's a digital pet that you can feed and raise and clean up after. Oh, a pet. CC looked delighted, and then immediately reverted her expression into a sad puppy dog face. Mommy and Daddy won't buy me a pet doggy because they said I'm too little. Don't try to swindle Uncle Ernie into getting you a dog, sweetie. It's a huge responsibility. Gina chuckled, ruffling Cece's hair. Maybe if you take good care of your Tamagotchi, your daddy and I will consider getting you a doggy. Cece leaped with joy, fiddling with the buttons. After a few minutes of beeping, she lost interest, tossed the Tamagotchi aside, and continued rummaging through the box. I'm surprised that thing still works. Ernie scrunched up his nose. Are we really getting that old? Kids don't know what Tamagotchis are anymore. You're 40, Ernie. You are old. I rolled my eyes. Hey, you're not that far behind. Ernie scoffed. 
It's Mr. Potato Head. Cece giggled, grabbing the old toy from the box. Mr. Potato Head was in serious need of facial implantation. Everything but one eye and a nose was gone. Where's his face? Where's Woody and Buzz? How does she know what that is? Ernie asked, genuinely surprised. Didn't Toy Story come out of the 90s? That Toy Story 4 came out a couple years ago, so we had to watch the entire franchise with her, Gina explained. There's a Toy Story 4? God, Ernie, you're really out of touch, aren't you? I chuckled. Hey, if I wanted to get hitched and have a kid, I would have done so by now. Ernie hopped defensively. Besides, I'm a good enough uncle. Cece's having a great time with the stuff that I brought. I mean, just look at her. Cece had managed to get her hair tangled within the confines of a slinky toy. She cried loudly as Gina tried to untangle her. Good times, huh? Ernie mused. Yeah, it's crazy how we found all of these things in the trash. I bent over and peered inside the box. I sifted through my old Beyblade collection, scattered Yu-Gi-Oh cards, a broken eye dog, a beaten up pair of Heelys with the wheels missing and an old iPod shuffle. There were also unopened cases of knockoff Barbie dolls and Bratz dolls on the mix that we found in a bin of a Kmart. Weren't we going to sell these off to the girls at school? And use the money to buy a Game Boy, heck yeah, Ernie nodded. But no girl at school wanted fake Barbies. I doubt Cece would want them either. Wait, Ern, do you remember these things? At the bottom of the box were two old yellow walkie-talkies. They were a bit beaten up and gunky from age, but they were surprisingly functional. They weren't your typical colorful Walmart-grade toy walkie-talkies, but they weren't quite military-grade either. That's some insane battery life right there. I mumbled as I played with the channels. I handed the other walkie-talkie over to my brother, who took it over to the other side of the living room. This is Alpha Team reporting from the living room. It's a war zone in here. Charlie, can you hear me? Hoorah, over. I can hear you, over. I laughed. This old pair of walkie-talkies cured our boredom on more than a few occasions when we were younger. When we found these discarded in the dumpster at the campgrounds that our dad used to take us to in the fall. In fact, we found a lot of stuff in the trash of the campgrounds. Lighters, toothpaste, unopened trail mix, granola bars, and occasionally chocolate bars. Our dad would call us little idiots for going through the trash, but that didn't stop us. We had stopped going a long time ago, but I had fond memories of camping. Why anybody would throw away a perfectly good pair of walkie-talkies, I could never figure out. What's that, Daddy? Cece was finally free from the grips of the slinky toy. She waddled over and stared at the device with intense curiosity. It's called a walkie-talkie, I explained. Back when phones weren't popular yet, people used these to communicate with each other. It's like too many radios that you can talk into. The spies used to use them. Spies? Cece's eyes widened. And police too. Wow, I want to be a spy police. Cece clapped her hands excitedly. You click on the side button when you want to say something, and then you let it go to hear what the other end wants to say. You have to end everything with over so that the other side knows you finished talking, Ernie said, demonstrating how to work the gadget. As the two played with their walkie-talkies, I packed up the rest of our childhood junk. 
I hope you're not putting that in the garage. Gina eyed the box. I'll go through everything later. Some of these things have real sentimental value, you know. Whatever. As long as it's gone by the end of the week with all the other junk. Gina sighed. If I had known a pair of old garbage walkie-talkies would have kept her this busy, I wouldn't have bought her the switch. Makes you wonder why we ever stopped using walkie-talkies in the first place. She makes them look so fun. I said, watching Cece and Ernie make random noises through the devices. Maybe because cell phones became a thing, Gina suggested. Eh, good point. For the rest of the night, Cece refused to communicate with us without the walkie-talkie. Everything we wanted to say to her, we would have to say into the walkie-talkie and end it with, over. She eventually grew bored of talking to us and started fiddling with the channels on the device while Ernie and I watched a family feud. Runaway 1-1 A man's voice came through Cece's walkie-talkie as we set up the couch for Ernie to crash on for the night. All clear for takeoff. Daddy, daddy, somebody's trying to talk to me. Stranger danger. Cece screeched, clearly caught off guard. Ernie chuckled. You've just turned into another frequency kid, he said, changing the channel. Sometimes walkie-talkies accidentally tune into different radio waves and you can hear pilots talk to each other. With a walkie-talkie like this, you could probably even hear things like police communications and park rangers if you surf the channels for long enough. I wouldn't encourage it, though. You wouldn't want them to know that you're snooping. And I don't want some weirdo figuring out that he's on the same frequency as her. I took the walkie from her. What's a weirdo? Cece asked innocently. Ah, nothing. It's way past your bedtime, young lady. I scolded, ignoring her question. Can I please bring this to my bed? Cece pleaded. She glanced at Ernie, who she knew would take her side. I promise I won't snoop. What's the harm? Ernie shrugged. She has school tomorrow, I sighed. I promise that I'll go to bed. I just want to hold on to this one. You can keep that one. She pointed to the other walkie-talkie lying on the ground, clutching onto her own. Alright, but you better not be talking to any strangers with that thing. I picked up a delighted Cece and headed upstairs to tuck her into bed. A sharp static transmission ringing in my ears woke me up abruptly. I groaned and brought these sides of my pillow to my face. Way too exhausted to deal with this at one in the morning. I knew immediately it was the dang walkie-talkie. I should have known better than to trust my daughter to not play around with it. Ah, Cece, stop playing with the dang walkie-talkie. I grumbled, rolling over to the walkie-talkie on my nightstand. Over. I heard a childish giggle from the other end, and the noise seemed to stop for a moment. But then the static came online again, buzzing louder and sounding more erratic by the second. Gina was sound asleep next to me. It was a good thing she was a heavy sleeper. Honey, please turn off your walkie-talkie and go to bed. Over. I sighed, but the static didn't stop. I got up, figuring there was an issue. Maybe Cece had left it leaning on the speaker button. Cece. Can, can anyone hear me? My eyes widened. That wasn't Cece's voice. The gruff voice of a man crackled through the walkie-talkie. I shot up in bed. Hello? I whispered into the walkie-talkie. 
Static crackled through before the same panicked voice spoke up again. Hello, hello. Uh, can anyone hear me? Anyone? I need help. Sir, can you calm down? What's your name? Where are you? I jumped out of bed and ran to my daughter's room, shot at what I had just heard. I really hoped Cece wasn't listening to something strange on the other end. Luckily, she was sound asleep. Walkie-talkie propped up on her nightstand. Her walkie-talkie produced a steady static akin to that of a calm, white noise. Hello? I grabbed both walkie-talkies and ran downstairs to where Ernie was sleeping on the couch. Ern, wake up. I shook my brother until he turned over. Is it morning already? Ernie blinked, groggy and confused. No, look. I pointed to the walkie-talkies in my hands. Oh, thank God you can actually hear me. I've been trying to find someone on this frequency for so long. My name is Harold Fisher and I don't know how long I've been here. I went camping with my son George and I haven't been able to reach anyone. Hang on, who is this? What's going on? Ernie shook his head now fully awake. Is this a prank or something? I don't know. I woke up to some giggling and this guy came through my walkie-talkie. I think he's in trouble. I threw my cell at Ernie. Call 911. Harold, Harold, are you still there? We're going to try and help you. Can you describe your surroundings? Any familiar landmarks? Maybe we can figure out where you are based off that. I suggested. I know where I am. I'm in the woods, a Bull Run Mountain. I just don't know my exact location. I've been walking around in circles forever. No landmarks. The trees all look the same. And I haven't seen the sun in so long. This has been the longest night of my life. Harold replied. Ball Run Mountain, I muttered. Ball Run Mountain was where our dad would take us camping when we were younger. It was where we found these walkie-talkies lying in the trash in the first place. And we've been there. We know where you are. The phone's not connecting. Ernie whisper yelled, holding up my phone. Sure enough, the screen read, no service. I waved at him to keep trying. There was no logical reason that we should have lost cell service unless the entire area was out. I just paid the phone bill. Can you please send someone to find me? Like the police or maybe a search and rescue ranger. I really need to find my son and go home. We're trying to contact the police now. Until we can do so. I don't... I don't know where I'm going. Everything looks the same. I lost my map, my compass. I'm starving. I feel like I haven't slept in days. But it's been nighttime forever now. I'm trying to find the campground again. And I don't know where my son went. I feel like I'm going insane. Like my sense of time is gone. The walkie-talkie fizzled out. I smacked it a few times to get it working again. Harold. Harold. I called, shaking the walkie-talkie. I can still hear you, Harold replied after a brief, static pause. I found a clearing that I've never seen before. At least I don't think I have. Alright, we're still trying to call the police. Can you stay put in one place while we try to figure this out? I can't stop now. I've got to find George and get home. My wife and daughter, oh god, please let Stephanie know that I'm alive and I'm here. They must be worried sick. Charlie, your phone's not working, and mine isn't either. Ernie said softly, I don't know what's going on. Maybe our phone lines are down. 
Keep trying anyway, I instructed. Harold, do you have a GPS or anything we can find you with? How did you end up where you are? No, I don't have anything. Look, all I know is I took my son on a camping trip. Everything was going great, but then he disappeared from our tent at night. And when I went to look for him, I left all my gear behind like an idiot. I haven't been able to find my way back since, and I don't know where he is at all. And do you see any stars in the sky? I was really grasping at straws here. Maybe he could position himself using the stars as a guide. A big Dipper, Little Dipper, anything. I see stars, but they're weird. Weird? I don't like looking at them. There's something off about them. They're too straight, Harold said. And the moon, too. It's weird. It looks so fake. Too big and bright. Everything looks so off here. I was out of ideas. I looked desperately at Ernie, who was still trying to dial 911 at any cost. And have you run into anyone else? I asked. It's just been me in the trees. No people, no animals. I would honestly hug a bear right now if it came up to me. At least I would know that I'm not alone. Can you tell me the date that you got there? You had to get a permit to camp, right? And we could probably alert the rangers. Good idea. Yeah, uh... Harold paused. I think it was September 6th. September? It's February. Ernie scrunched his eyebrows. He's been there for six months. What are you talking about? I asked. Did you mean February 6th? No, it was September 6th, 1995. 1995? I was incredulous. Sir, you must be mistaken. It's 2021. Wait, uh, I think I see someone. Harold's breath started picking up. At the same time, the walkie-talkie I grabbed from Cece's room stopped giving off the static sound. <laughs> the same childlike giggle that woke me up came through the speaker of Cece's walkie-talkie, but this time the giggle seemed to be on an eerie loop. I think I see a child. I think that's George. Harold sounded delighted. That's my son. I found my son. Hide and seek, hide and seek. The child's voice chanted from the other walkie-talkie. Crap. Ernie threw his phone to the ground and grabbed the walkie-talkie from my hand. We had the unanimous feeling that whoever Harold was seeing, it wasn't his son. Harold, don't go towards the child. Ernie warned, but it was of no use. The fact that we could still hear Harold meant that he had not let go of the speaker on his end. He probably wasn't hearing a thing from our end, though. Oh, God. Harold stammered. That's... that's not... He began to break down. My son, he's hanging from the tree. By his neck, he's just hanging there. It's his skin, just his skin. Everything's so flat, and oh, his eyes are just gone. They're empty. Harold, please. Whatever you're seeing, it's not. Why? Why is he just hanging there? Who put my son there? Harold wailed. Who? Sir, we... George, oh Christ, how is he moving? Why is he smiling? A loud screech ripped through both speakers of the walkie-talkies. We winced in pain, dropping them instinctively. The screech died down gradually, being replaced by total and complete silence. Until a clear voice, devoid of any static interference, flowed through both speakers. Found you! 
The child's voice giggled. Something's coming out of his skin. I heard Harold scream and begin to make a mad dash across the forest. The sound of the crunching of leaves beneath him was only overpowered by his heavy breathing and wheezing. I could hear Harold as clear as day now, and it was as if I was listening to Harold running in surround sound and not through two old walkie-talkies. And he wasn't alone anymore. I could also hear a child maniacally laughing in the background. Whatever he had found in the tree, it was now following him through the forest, and we couldn't do anything about it. I heard him suddenly gasp at the distinct sound of a tumble and a sickening crunch following immediately. My ankle, Harold sobbed. Any hope he ever had left his voice. It has my ankle. I can't call anyone, Ernie yelled. The phones are completely down. No, no, please, please don't. Help, help me, Harold screamed. It sounded as though he was crawling at this point, desperate to escape whatever was chasing him. Harold, Harold, can you still hear us? Can you? But subconsciously, I knew I was calling out in vain. Something told me that I wasn't going to hear from Harold anymore. I heard a final thud, the sound of his horrified scream being cut off, and then total complete silence once more. Ernie and I sat holding our breaths. We looked at each other unsure what to do. The walkie-talkie stared quietly back to us. Minutes passed, but we didn't have to wait long to figure out what our next moves were because the low, gruff voice of Harold came through the speakers, clear as water. You're it. Heck no, I'm not taking any chances with this stuff. Ernie grabbed the walkie-talkies and ran to the garage. I followed him, grabbing a golf club near the entryway of the garage. He grabbed an old baseball bat from the corner, threw the cackling walkie-talkies against the concrete floor, and began to smash them. We smashed the devices repeatedly until the laughter had fizzled out. By the time that we were done, all there was left of the walkie-talkies were crunched up pieces of yellow metal. Breathing heavily, I gingerly approached the mangled walkie-talkies and gave them a nudge with my foot. No more audio emitted from either device. Ernie collapsed on the ground, shoulders heaving from the adrenaline rushing through his veins. That never happened when we were younger, he said. It didn't know. We paused to catch our breath and collect our thoughts. Too many weird things had been happening lately for me to be phased, but Ernie didn't know about that. Any chance that could have been an elaborate prank? If it was, it'd be a blessing. And uh, what do you think happened to Harold? Ernie asked tentatively. I don't want to think about what happened to Harold, I declared. I didn't want to live with the fact that I probably heard a man's last words before her. he was mauled by whatever creature he was stuck in the woods with, and the fact that his wife and kid, if they really existed, probably thought that he had just disappeared this entire time. I groaned, rubbing my face in my palms. I need an exorcist, and I need to get all of this stuff out of my garage before Gina kills me. If Gina wasn't enough motivation to go through all of my dumpster finds, this was definitely a strong contender. Or before that thing on the other end finds you, Ernie pointed out and I rolled my eyes. And would you look at that? He said showing me the full bars on his cell screen. Phone service is back. CC was mad of course, 
When she woke up that morning, she immediately began to interrogate me about the walkie-talkies. Ernie left early for work, so I was left to deal with her questions. I wish that I could have just told her the truth, but there was no way I was scarring my daughter's imagination like that. She refused to eat her cereal and only settled for a piece of toast after being prompted to do so by Gina. I tried explaining to her that the walkie-talkies were defective and didn't work anymore. But ultimately, her reasoning for her anger made me glad that we had destroyed the walkie-talkies on the spot. And George was telling me to play hide-and-seek with him tomorrow, and now I can't anymore. If you hear screams on Mount Everest, it's already too late. Written by Certain Emergency 122. My best friend Mike was the one who invited me to join their triennial trip to Everest. I almost said no. For one, I didn't have $50,000 to blow on a guided expedition, a climbing permit, and gear. For another, I'm not that kind of guy. Walking between my apartment and 7-Eleven was the extent of my physical activity last year. But Mike had offered to help cover my share of the trip. And then Derek had said, sneeringly, If you can even keep up, you do know that it's every man for himself up there, right? That had sealed it. Guys like Derek have looked down on me my whole life. That's how I ended up here, in a hospital bed in Nepal. Out of the 37 climbers who made it to Camp 3 and stayed the night, I'm the only one who survived, and that was due to sheer luck. Tashi and Sylvie left C3 two hours after arriving there, because Sylvie had symptoms of high-altitude pulmonary edema. When nobody responded via radio the next day, Tashi had alerted the rescue workers. They found me nearly 2,000 feet from where I had fallen. I had two cracked ribs, a fractured pelvis, and a concussion. I barely pulled through. Everybody thinks that an avalanche swept the other climbers away. I'm here to tell you the truth about what had happened on Everest. It's not the avalanches, crevices, or falling ice you need to fear. I slowly and carefully edged onto the first of the three ladders the Sherpas had set out over the crevice. And this was our third rotation through the Kumbi Icefall, a river of ice strewn with towering ice cerics and deep crevices. If the weather permitted us, we would spend tonight at Camp 2, C2, tomorrow night at C3, five hours overnight at C4, and then push for the summit. And Mike was 20 feet ahead of me, and Derek had passed us 10 minutes ago, along with Jack and Sylvie, our head guide and junior guide respectively. Jack insisted that we stay close together so that he could supervise us. I tried not to dwell on the fact that I was slowing our whole team down. Everyone besides me had high-altitude experience, even if it was just somebody in Kilimanjaro. Just then, a gust of wind sent the ladder swaying beneath me, and my right crampon nearly slipped. Even though I was clipped to the safety rope, I pictured myself falling, my body repeatedly smashing against the icy walls of the crevice until I landed in a broken heap at the bottom. Go back to base camp, 
suggested a craven inner voice. Better yet, go back to the airport and get the heck out of here. Unable to help myself, I darted a look downwards and caught a flash of movement. Something large and pale clung to the sheer icy walls of the crevice, right below our ladder. As though it felt my eyes on it, it rapidly scuttled out of sight. What the actual heck? It had almost looked like, well, like a person. You're right, Theo. I flinched and nearly fell after all. And that was Tashi, one of the two climbing Sherpas on our team. Tashi had hung back to track our progress and help us navigate the icefall. While the rest of us struggled to breathe, the Sherpas remained unaffected by the altitude. They were the true heroes of Everest. The ones who navigated the safest and most direct routes. They fixed the ropes and even more. Many of the Sherpas also had legends about Everest, which they called Komalangma. They believed that the Buddhist goddess, Mio Langsigma, resided at its summit. A handful of Sherpas even claimed that hungry ghosts haunted the mountain, ghosts that had never been human. Others mentioned the disappearances of climbers whose bodies had never been found. In fact, it had been difficult to find Sherpa guides for our expedition this month. And Derek wasn't the type of guy who took no for an answer though, not when he could throw a crap ton of money at the problem. May Theo, do you need to head back down? I realized that I had frozen in place for the past couple of minutes. I'm fine. No way was I going to back out over something I thought I saw, like Derek would ever let me live it down. I forced myself to relax my white-knuckled grip on the ropes and took a cautious step forward, then another and another. My heart still thundered wildly in my chest, but I knew I could make it to the summit. Probably, maybe. One thing at a time, Theo. C2 was located at the foot of Lot's face. Everest dominated the skyline, punching straight up through the air and crowding out her neighboring peaks. By the time that we reached C2, I was more than ready to collapse. If my tent hadn't already been set up for me, I would have dropped to the ground and refused to move. I beelined towards it, past the 80 or so other tents at C2, crawled into my sleeping bag and I passed out. An odd rustling noise woke me up in the dead of the night. At first, I assumed that I had imagined it. The roar of the wind, so much like the roar of the surf, providing a relaxing soundtrack. And I nearly fell back asleep when the sound had repeated itself. Louder this time. I fumbled for my headlamp. Multiple people stood outside my tent, pushing at it from all sides. I could see the shapes of their hands deforming the nylon fabric. Fear clawed up my throat, and it took a solid minute for me to realize that it had been Derek messing with me, and Derek and his friends from the New Zealand team. Ever since the trip had started, he had made one snide joke after another about my lack of high-altitude experience. Infuriated, I tried to surge to my feet forgetting that I was still partially zipped into my sleeping bag. By the time that I managed to leave my tent, everybody else had vanished. I glared out at the empty expanse of snow and I yelled, You guys are complete idiots. 
As I turned around to go back inside, something struck me as strange about the ground beneath my tent, but I was too eager to get warm again to dwell on it. Not for the first time, I wondered why Mike even hung out with Derek. Mike was a quiet, thoughtful guy embarrassed about his wealth, and Derek was a trust fund dude bro who always had to one-up you. I let it go, I told myself. In three days, you'll be standing at the top of Everest. And I did manage to let it go, at least until I saw Derek sitting in our mess tent. Jack had woken us up before sunrise again, and thanks to Derek's juvenile prank, I got less than three hours of sleep. I marched over to his table. Why'd you mess with my tent last night? Derek raised his eyebrows. What are you talking about? Last night you messed with my tent. Uh, no, I didn't. He leaned forward and gave me a sunny smile full of teeth. Maybe you should head back to base camp, go get checked out by Angela. Angela was our base camp manager and doctor. Before we had set out on our first rotation, she had given us a long lecture about the warning signs of hap and taste, and she had also mentioned the possibility of experiencing high-altitude psychosis. But I hadn't hallucinated what had happened last night. Anyway, I knew why Derek was making the suggestion, and it wasn't out of concern for my well-being. He just didn't want me slowing them down. Forget it, I said through gritted teeth, leaving the tent. His laughter chased me out, and I nearly walked right into Sylvie. She deftly swept around me at the last second. Sorry, I muttered, knowing that the tips of my ears were turning out bright red. Sylvie somehow looked even more beautiful up here than she had at base camp. I wasn't the only one who had noticed her. Derek had spent the first two weeks of our trip bragging to her about summoning Cho Oyu and Denali, despite her obvious disinterest. Jack said it's time for us to climb up, she said, unperturbed and gathered everybody else up. Jack began to review what to do if the valves on our oxygen canisters iced over, or if our oxygen pipes were knocked loose. He had already gone over the basics of using bottled oxygen at base camp, so I tuned him out in favor of staring up at the climb ahead of us. The lot's face was a wall of glacial blue ice that rose at pitches ranging from 40 to 50 degrees, complete with occasional 80 degree bulges. After passing those, it was a simple, simple, steep climb up to C3, which punctuated the phase. We had purposefully avoided telling anyone else about our summit bed, so the cue to climb wasn't as bad as it could have been. I tried to find a rhythm between kicking my crampons into the hard ice and hauling myself up with the Jumars, but I kept needing to stop and allow faster climbers to clip their carabiners to the rope ahead of me. Halfway through the climb, I finally realized what had been bothering me about last night. I hadn't seen any footprints outside of my tent, none except for my own. Could Derek have been right? Had I imagined the entire event, the same way that I had imagined seeing a man in the crevice? No, no way. But unease swept over me in a wave and didn't leave me until after I arrived at C3. The view from C3 almost made the climb worth it. It allowed us to see the clouds rolling into the western swim, 
the flat glacial valley that we had passed through yesterday, and the plumes drifting from Everest's summit. Natasha and Dorji had painstakingly dug out small terraces for our tents to rest on. They had chosen a spot high above the other team's tents, which meant that we would get a head start on the climbing tomorrow. There weren't that many other teams here anyway, only three. Another American one, the Canadian one, and the New Zealand team. At 23,950 feet above sea level, the simplest actions from tying on my crampons to picking up my water bottle became immensely difficult, as though someone had tied heavy weights to my limbs. It took 10 minutes of breathing in the artificial air from my canister before my brain started working normally again. We each had six bottles of oxygen, three to climb up the summit and another three to get back down. And tomorrow night at the South Coal would be the first time that we were in the death zone. It was called that because at that altitude, the human body could no longer acclimatize to the lack of oxygen. Our cells would begin to die from oxygen deprivation. As Mike and I went into the tent we would be sharing from here on out, I debated whether or not to bring up what I had seen last night. Would he tell me to head back down to base camp too? But before I could say anything, Mike broke the silence first. Hey, thanks for coming with me, man. It's good to have you here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for inviting me. I'm just sorry that you had to cover my share of the trap. I laughed awkwardly and looked down on my water bottle to cover up my discomfort. How did you get into mountain climbing anyway? I thought you hated heights. I vividly remember the time that our families had gone to Disney World together. Mike and I had been about 10 years old, and I had convinced him to ride Space Mountain with me. As soon as the roller coaster had moved forward, he started shrieking his head off. Mike grinned sheepishly, as though he was remembering Space Mountain too. Yeah, I do, but there's nothing else out there that beats climbing. When you're here, it's like the rest of the world just falls away, and all that BS with it. Everything's simpler. Maybe scarier, but it's almost more real. I've never felt like this anywhere else. I sort of knew what he meant. Life at base camp was simpler. Climb, eat, sleep, rinse and repeat. And I could easily see how the dangers here made a successful summit even sweeter. I thought of Jack saying that climbing a mountain revealed who you truly were. It ground you down until you had no defenses left. The question burst out of me before I could stop it. Do you really think we'll make it all the way? I hadn't cared about summiting when we had first arrived at base camp. I just hadn't wanted to embarrass myself. Now the idea of turning back before reaching the top seemed insane. Yeah, Jack and the Sherpas will get us there. Mike fell asleep right away, but I kept drifting off and startling back awake. I would think that hours had passed only to discover it had only been about 10 minutes. Wearing the oxygen mask was like having plastic wrapped around my head. It was nearing 3am and I had just closed my eyes again when I heard the sound of screams. Long, pain-filled screams. I shook Mike awake. Come on, we need to go. There's something wrong out there. What? What are you talking about? I don't know. I grabbed my headlamp and I headed outside. 
It took a minute for me to comprehend what exactly I was looking at. Blood everywhere, and the bodies of the other climbers. Most of them were barely recognizable. Something had torn them apart like ragdolls and trampled all the tents below us. I ran towards a woman who had collapsed a few feet away from us, one that I had recognized. She was on the New Zealand team. Maybe we weren't too late. Maybe we could bring her inside. And then I realized that she had been ripped nearly in half. Her intestines spilled out in messy loops and the ragged edges of her torn skin fluttered in the wind. We need to get to Jack, Mike said, his face drawn and pallid. My eyes kept catching on her outstretched arm. The fingers curled limply into her palm. With difficulty, I forced myself to look away. Yeah, but what about everybody else? I don't see Tashi in Sylvie's tent, but Jack in radio base camp. He'll let them know what happened here. He was right. Tashi and Sylvie's tent had vanished. I didn't want to think about what that meant. I followed Mike towards Jack and Dorji's tent, trying not to look around more than I had to. The nameless woman's body remained burned into my mind's eye, like a hole charred into a piece of paper. Everyone here might be already dead, except for us. The thought made the world waver around me, and I had to bite the inside of my cheek until I tasted blood. Dumb because at this altitude, the wound wouldn't heal, but the pain helped steady me. As Mike unzipped Jack's tent, I became aware of a loud slurping sound, as though someone was sucking up a milkshake through a straw. I tried to grab Mike's arm, but he had moved out of rage. He shouted, Jack, we need your help. We need you. He stopped speaking as the light of his headlamp revealed what was only a few feet away from us. The man that I had seen in the crevice the other day, the man I had convinced myself I had imagined, was crouched over something long and red. He wore faded, tattered clothes, and his skin was a bloodless white, as pale as the snow on the ground. His head snapped up and I took an involuntary step backwards because it wasn't a man after all. It couldn't be. Its eyes were two shiny silver quarters, and its mouth a round disc full of sharp, inward-pointing teeth. It lunged towards us, moving jerkily. Mike knocked me backwards as he turned to run, but he was too late. It fell on him. He tried to get his arms up to protect his face and only partially succeeded. It snapped off the fingers in his right hand, and red splayed out from these stumps and across the tent ceiling. As it fastened its mouth over Mike's neck, he let loose a high, miserable scream. For Christ's sakes, do something, my mind screamed at me. I dropped to all fours to search through the jumble of objects in the tent. Mike's screams cut off right as I found the ice axe half buried under Jack's torn sleeping bag. It took me 30 seconds to get it tops, but when I turned around, Mike and the thing had vanished. A thick trail of red had led me to where the back of the tent had been ripped open. Mike! I ran outside, trying to look in every direction at once, but he was nowhere in sight. All I saw was Jack. More was left of him. His lower jaw was missing, and his half-severed tongue was nestled in the hollow of his throat.
still connected by the barest thin strap of muscle. I kept going, circling around our tents until I was at the front again. It had started snowing, making it even harder to look around. The area between my shoulder blades itched with the awareness that something lurked in the darkness, something biding its time. Something brushed against my shoulder. I wheeled around and swung my axe, terror thrumming through my entire body, only to find Eric staring back at me, his eyes wide and frightened. He dodged at the last second, so that I overbalanced and the point of the axe went wide. What the heck is wrong with you? He shouted. I ignored this. Have you seen Mike anywhere? No, no. I haven't seen anyone aside from you, you freaking psycho. I just came outside because I heard the screams. He trailed off and slammed me up against the tent. What happened here? Did you do this? I opened my mouth to tell him that I hadn't done anything, only for a terrible ringing shriek to render my explanation unnecessary. He looked up to see the thing from behind clinging to the wall of ice, ten feet above us. It should have been impossible. The ice had no handholds or footholds, but it maintained its position without any apparent effort. Our gazes locked in at that moment. I had no doubt that it was seeing me. Really seeing me. Its silver eyes shone with a sly cunning, and it grinned at me a horrible expression that changed its features into a twisted mockery of the human face. It leapt, and before I could defend myself, its weight drove me to the ground and ripped the axe out of my hands. It darted its head forward like a striking snake, and I barely managed to stop it from biting a chunk of flesh out of my cheek. But it was too strong for me to hold back much longer. My fingers slid slowly and inexorably off its face. It reared back for another strike, its lamprey mouth stretching impossibly wide and I flinched away pointlessly. Abruptly, its face changed, the mouth rounding into a surprised O as the point of an axe came shoving out of its right eye, right through the back of its head. I squirmed out from underneath it. Derek stood over me, his mouth twisted into a grimace. It screeched again, a hundred nails scraping down a hundred chalkboards. And this time I knew, somehow, that it was communicating. Talking. Black tarry stuff poured out from its punctured eye, and it writhed helplessly on its back, like an overturned cockroach. And then it shivered all over and began to rot, eyes sinking into the sockets, skin loosening from bones and shriveling, and hair drifting away from a skull. And it didn't stop there either. The fingernails peeling away, teeth falling out one after another, and bones cracking and crumbling into dust, only for another gust of wind to scatter the entire pile of dusty bits and pieces of it across the snow. It all happened so quickly that by the time I got to my feet, it was gone. What was that thing? Asked Derek, shuddering. He no longer looked like the arrogant guy who I had spent this entire trip antagonizing me. More like a little kid who had just discovered that the monsters hiding in his closet were real. No idea, but we need to get out of here now. I thought briefly of Mike who might still be alive. Only I knew better. No one could have lost the amount of blood he had and still survive. At least not without receiving immediate medical attention. And do you want to know the worst thing about it? My brain accepted the fact that he was dead. 
that I had just lost my best friend of over 12 years, and it went on coldly calculating my odds of surviving long enough to get back down to base camp. As if to emphasize my words, a chorus of unholy screeches echoed through the night. We exchanged a wordless look and ran for it. I sprinted past the nameless woman on my right. One of her eyelids had popped open, while the other one was still gummed shut so that she seemed to be giving us a cynical wink. You can run, but it won't help. If I had thought that the climb was difficult before, it was nothing compared to when my life was on the line. My entire world narrowed down by kicking my cramp onto the hard blue ice and clinging onto the face as the wind tried to pry me loose. I hadn't had time to clip myself into the fixed rope. If I fell, there wouldn't be a soft, gentle landing. I would fall more than 5,000 feet, and God only knew where I would end up. Derek had outpaced me, but he had started cursing under his breath. Rocks clattered down the slope. Go back up, he screamed. Go up. I glanced down. Silver pinpricks of light glowed in the darkness, rapidly approaching us. There were more of those things, maybe six or eight, and they were all headed straight towards us. They easily scudded over the steep icy bulges of the face, spreading out in line to prevent us from climbing past them. The only way for us to go was up, into the death zone. The angle of the slope above C3 was steep, much steeper than I had anticipated. Despite pushing myself to climb as quickly as I could, my calves trembled with fatigue. My breath kept coming short and my head ached from fatigue. Derek was right on my heels, harshly gasping for air. The closer those things got to us, the more clearly we heard the strange and guttural shrieks and the hisses that comprised their language. They were only ten feet behind us now. My stomach tightened with dread, and I waited for a claw-tipped hand to close around my ankle and an iron grab. Nothing happened. They should have caught up to us already, but they were pacing themselves, falling back, allowing us to continue climbing. But why? I found the answer in their grinning, bloodthirsty faces. Because there was no way out. Even if we climbed the six hours that it took us to reach the South Pole, and managed to stay ahead of them the whole time, all the way up to the summit, then what? What would we do at the summit, with nowhere else to climb? What could we do? We can't keep climbing up, I shouted to Derek. I started scrambling sideways, away from the established route, and doing so meant risking falling into a crevice. But a swift death was better than being ripped apart from limb to limb. Additional shrieks rang through the night, and I knew without a doubt that they had changed course to follow us. The slope eventually leveled out and we stumbled over an ankle-breaking mixture of snow, ice, and rock. Derek in the lead, stinging sweat dripped into my eyes, and the world turned to blurry as my body struggled to cope with the lack of oxygen. I spotted an outcropping of large boulders ahead. Maybe we could throw ourselves behind them. Maybe. Suddenly, one of them scrambled forward on all fours to block our path. The other five surrounded us in a loose circle. From the back, they looked like normal men and women, but the illusion fell away entirely once they faced you. 
They all had the same unnatural silver eyes and lamprey mouths, the same malicious expressions on their faces. I turned to Derek. He had a spare ice axe in his hands. I gestured towards it, but instead of giving one back to me, he backed away and shook his head. He didn't even have to say it aloud. It's every man for himself up here. It had been his constant refrain since our trip had started, and I didn't have any time to convince him. They began to dart forward one at a time playing with us. Without a weapon, I couldn't do much other than attempt to dodge them and fail. One of them fainted towards the left and then swung around to strike me in the throat. I fell over with a panicked cry. When I tentatively touched my throat, I felt a loose flap of skin hanging down nearly to my chest. I staggered back up just in time to see Derek swing on both of his axes at another one. It darted underneath as smoothly as though they had rehearsed this move a thousand times and caught the head of the axe without even trying. Its other arm whipped out, lightning fast, and clawed open his stomach. Derek screamed and collapsed. Both arms crossed over himself protectively. The circle around us tightened, and finally I understood that I was going to die here. We were both going to die here. I tried to steel myself as they advanced on us, their eyes alight with bloodlust. There was a loud whomp from high above us. The things paused, their expression suddenly turning wary. My oxygen-deprived brain didn't understand what was happening at first, not until the snow began to shift under my feet. I staggered over to Derek and tried to yank him up. He was lying face down, and his own red had soaked into the snow beneath him. I had just enough time to say his name before a massive wave of snow flung us forward. I tumbled head over heels, no longer able to tell which way was up or down, as the snowy ground and star-strewn sky became an incomprehensible blur. I barely managed to keep my hold on Derek as the snow carried us down the slope. Something sharp and hard abruptly arrested our fall, slamming into my right side with painful force. A boulder. Derek's body pins me against it, trapping me in place. I screamed, which made my side hurt even more, and I had to bite my lip to stop the whimpers that wanted to escape from my throat. The whole ordeal only lasted about 40 seconds, but the snow had buried us in those other things deep within its grasp. Everything was pitch black. How far from the surface were we? Six inches or six feet, I didn't know, and it hurt to breathe. I had to act before it was too late before the ice settled and prevented all further movement. I knocked the snow away from our noses and mouths to create an air pocket. I had to be grateful for the boulder now because it had probably prevented us from being buried even deeper. But how long would our air supply last? And time lost all meaning. Minutes, maybe even hours crawled by. I tried to stay calm because panicking would only waste our limited air supply but it was hard to think about things I might never get the chance to do again. Visiting my parents, hanging out with my friends, and going back to school to finish my master's degree. I didn't want to die here. I didn't want to die at all. But I was going to, and soon, if I didn't decide what to do within the next few seconds. I forced myself to reach out to Derek. His skin was cold under my fingertips, 
His pulse are thready and weak, but he was still breathing somehow. I could try and most likely fail to dig a way out for the both of us. Or, I swallowed hard. My fingertips skated over his back. And for a heart-stopping moment, I thought that it had been dislodged and lost forever, just as mine had. But it was there, dented on one side. But there, his oxygen canister... Derek struggled weakly as I began to detach his mask from it. What are you doing? He slurred, his voice hoarse. He tried to bat me away, but neither of us could move much because of the immense pressure from the weight of the snow. And Derek had lost a lot of blood. I didn't respond. I didn't have the breath to. Moving as quickly as I could... I attached my own mask to the canister and took a deep breath of the tinny, artificial air. It was so cold that it hurt my throat to breathe it in, and I had never felt anything better in my life. I did my best to ignore Derek as he tried futilely to take his canister back from me. As he stopped breathing, as a choking rattle issued from his throat, I couldn't have done anything for him. We both would have died. It was every man for himself up here. Thank you so much for making it to the end of this week's episode. I feel like every week the stories just keep getting better and better. I hope you think that too. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.